hereby call to order the Wednesday, December 20th, 2023, North Southwest Regional School Committee open meeting. Hello. First thing on the agenda is audience sharing. Do we have any audience sharing? Okay, moving on. Action on the minutes of November 15th, 2023. Right here, a motion. I make a motion to approve the uh, open meeting minutes of November 15th, 2023. Do I hear a second? Okay, moved by Chris, seconded by Karen. Uh, any discussion? All those in favor? That is unanimous. Um, okay, educational policy none, new business. So, um, Selvi Oyola was going to join us this evening, but she had a passing unexpectedly in her family, so she will be at the January meeting. Very excited to formally introduce her to the, the school committee at the January session. And also this evening, we are very excited to uh, introduce Michelle Kalin. So welcome, Michelle. Michelle is the Career Exploration and Innovation Leader. Um, and Sean, I'm not sure if you want to give a brief introduction. To yeah, Michelle. So she, yeah, we're very excited to have Michelle join us. Uh, she has been with us for about three and a half weeks and has joined on to our uh, leadership team um, and joined the several standing committees we're on and it's been doing the work of like inventorying what our current practice is so far and then developing a network of other career exploration professionals including you know, our very own Karen to, uh, to deepen our understanding of that work and then start to build up you know, the kinds of things uh, where we could improve on our on how we support our kids with a uh, career development and so we're really excited to see how they go. All right. Welcome. <laughs> and also, we'd just like to thank Principal Bevan and Dr. Reinhorn for leading the search committee. So they were very successful, and we have a, a great person now on our team. So uh, we're very excited. Yeah, Michelle brings with her a wealth of, of, uh, of experience in this area, coming from the college ranks, uh, and also a kind of a network and a Rolodex of the And usually the, the newest hire has a 15-minute <laughs> welcome, welcome opening remarks. So. But for you, well, you know, because you were such a great hire, we'll just we'll hold on. Pass on that one. Uh, okay, English department presentation. Sure. So uh, it gives me pleasure, uh, my great pleasure to introduce Jane Bitar, who is our English department chair. And so let me start presenting to you, Jane. So it's um, it's nice to see you again. It's been this is a little different setup. I know, <laughs> it's a little disorienting. Um, if you want to stand over there too, wherever you want to be, yeah. wherever you're comfortable. I'm not really sure, but <laughs> it, is, it is nice to be here. Two years ago, we were spread out in the auditorium. Uh -huh. Maybe that's right. I'm not really sure, but I remember uh, sharing a topic that. Um, was of debate at the time in the English department, and that was is listening to a book, reading a book. Uh, and so I thought, I come here, and I've done this many times, and of course I get a little nervous, and what can I share? There's nothing new going on, it's the same old job. Um, but of course there's always stuff going on, and so I'm here to share some of the new stuff, um, some of what we're talking about, some of what we're um, toiling over 
some of the tough questions and decisions we have to make uh, very quickly. Um, because I do love talking and talking, <laughs> teaching and educating and sharing with you. I know my time is limited, but so I set up a little table over here. I know your time is limited as well, and you probably take zero breaks. Uh, so you may not make your way over to that table, but the stuff I can't really talk about, but I want to share with you and showcase and highlight is over there on that table. Um, so a quick overview of the English department. Um, you have my old slides. Oh, you. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Jean. All right. Um, I, sh I sh sorry. Okay. <laughs> Jump ahead and I'll go, go in there. Well, I could probably work from those, but the okay. new ones are much better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to tell you, see, you see how brief they are? Yeah, that okay. was a skeletal. Okay. The skeletal oh, one I turned in um, last week. Okay. And Sean looked at it, saw all the white space, and he put those pictures up there. <laughs> um, Sean, I, yeah. do you want us to go to the next subject while you bring, um, find it, and then we can come back? Sure, we could do that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I apologize. We'll no, that's fine. Take your time. No, 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 it's my, it, my mistake. It, I shared it with you on Monday. Got it, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, this is, not, this is not. We'll go to yeah, the next easy. one, and then we'll come We're back. flexible. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I'm sorry. So legislative update. Um, so a few weeks ago, we had um, Senator Kennedy, um, state representatives Kilcoyne and Donahue, visit Algonquin Regional High School. They were interested to actually tour the facility and talk about some of the uh, opportunities students have for learning. We spent a lot of time in the wood shop and the robotics room and the metal room, and which they were very surprised to see. Um, and we talked about, um, you know, again, with our new position, with Michelle taking on a new position, talking about innovative pathways and really thinking about chapter 74 and some of those other potential opportunities. Um, you know, as you all know, we have a business concentration, so we talked about the business concentration and again, how can we use the programs that we have and expand them um, to become chapter 74 programs and chapter 70 program, four programs actually bring us more money per people um, and we already have them. So that was a good conversation. We also talked about um, chapter 70 funding special education reimbursement, transportation reimbursement, the normal types of um, requests and advocacy and that the committee advocates for each year. Um, and it was, a, it was a, a great meeting, it was nice to connect. We also toured the athletic complex, um, so it was great for them to see that project. Um, and overall, it was a great meeting. One of the um, conversations that Principal Devin and I had was inviting them back to the school committee meeting so they can hear directly from you. Usually we're invited to the town's um, presentation, but I think it's important for them to come to the school committee and actually hear directly from the school committee. Um, so that is something we'll work on in the, in the months of uh, January and February. And that is the legislative update. Okay. We are ready. And again, <laughs> I apologize. That was a curveball, Jean. Um, uh, the pictures are nice. I, I tend to go pretty basic. Um, in fact, sometimes I don't even have the, the slides. <laughs> but um, the English department is a large department, and something that's unique about us is kids have to take English every semester of every year in high school, all four years. Um, so it's a graduation requirement. There's 15 English teachers. 
um, 16 courses. Three of those courses are the year-long core, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade courses. And the other 13 are electives and AP courses. Um, in terms of updating you on some new changes, we've opened up some of our writing electives to grade nine students and grade 10 students. For many years, it was just 11 and 12. The young kids don't always have room in their schedule, but there are a few in these writing classes. Um, and then we're hoping, we're proposing a new elective um, <coughs> next year. It, we're in the you know, sort of early talks um, with Sean about this, and it's exciting because it's a co-taught um, elective with an English teacher and a science teacher, uh, environmental uh, studies teacher. Called Environmental Humanities, co-taught by English and Science, and so we're excited to propose that coming up really soon, and to see uh, how many kids sign up for it. Um, some updates also um, before I get to the work we're doing with students in the classroom. That's new. I always want to share with you the work of the Algonquin Writing Center, um, the kids and the advisors, teachers, and the Harbinger. Um, because those kids are um, among the many at Algonquin whose work goes outside the four walls of this building. They attend conferences, they write papers and do research, they present their work at these conferences and workshops that are highly attended. Um, they attend workshops by Boston Globe reporters um, and uh, the Spotlight team and um, they get their work published. Uh, and actually, CAST was recently just awarded um, uh, a journalism award for a piece that she co-wrote, and it's over there. <laughs> <laughs> right, CAST? Yes. Is it a review? It was a review. A review. Um, so they attended a national convention, uh, Journalism Education Association, um, and the New England Scholastic Press Association, they attended 10 kids, went with two teachers, the advisors, Lindsay Copins and Michelle Shepard. And they stayed overnight in Boston. Um, you may recall having approved a field trip of that sort. Attended workshops and um, won some awards. The Harbinger, the online Harbinger, um, was awarded fourth, I think, in the country uh, for a school this size for an online newspaper. Uh, so again, there's some articles that were awarded, including classes, over there in a little display. Um, and the Writing Center uh, will be going to their national convention uh, in March, and four students will be presenting papers that they wrote and researched um, in the form of a workshop for other students. And um, their, one of their advisors, Seth Zarnecki, is also uh, also has had work published. His article is over there. It was published in the um, National Council, the English Journal, for the National Council of Teachers of English. And last week, he presented a webinar on this topic of labor-based grading. Um, so I have to highlight some of the adults and not just the students, because the professional work of some of these teachers is exciting, um, and their students and I benefit from this. Uh, and it's authentic. Um, it's authentic work for an audience outside the classroom. Their teachers are showing their students that the passion is alive and they continue to grow even after 15 and 20 years of teaching. Um, so I think 
that is sort of the update. And what I wanted to zoom in, um, zoom in on a little bit is some of the work we're doing in uh, curriculum uh, uh, review and revision. Um, and we do this through PLCs, professional learning communities, and I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with them. Um, but we're fortunate, um, we are fortunate here that recently, through the efforts of, of you and the administration and this, the union, I think all teachers have had um, prep time built into their daily <coughs> schedule. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that gives us time to collaborate with other teachers on special topics. And so the PLC is a professional learning community where you pick a topic and you do usually meet weekly with these people. And what we're doing in the English department is we are updating and revising our curriculum um, because the world is changing and because our you know, vision 2026 is, you know, is new and we're working to meet that. Our students are changing and uh, the canon is changing or not. Um, so we need to sit together and work on making common um, uh, uh, common assessments, common units, sort of standardizing a little bit of our work more than it has been in the past without losing our autonomy and um, individuality as teachers. It's, it's a fine balance. It's a, it's a tough balance. Um, so we, we set out to um, assess what's working, what's outdated, what we, where the gaps are. We use the frameworks, we use best practices, um, we use one another, we use professional communities that we're involved in outside of school to help make decisions around skill building and content. Um, English is, our discipline is something I think that is beautiful and wonderful to teach. Uh, it's stories, it's language, it's, it's human behavior, it's heartache, it's triumph. Uh, but with, with that beauty and with that choice we have comes a lot of decision making and toiling and debating and disagreeing. And these are some of the topics that we toil over um, in the past couple of years. You, you know, do we teach Shakespeare? There are teachers who think, no, there's no reason to teach Shakespeare anymore. And there are others who believe really strongly that there's a place for Shakespeare. Not only are the content of his plays quite relevant, despite how old they are, um, but you know, he's for many of us, for many of us, he's he's a language, a master of language. Um, so we have a lot of discussions around the changing canon, and this is also in relation to culturally responsive teaching, windows and mirrors, um, creating for our new students in our classrooms. Our student body is changing. And so we have to find a way to connect with them um, and to connect with them and to build their skills. To build their skills, you've got to connect with them and choose the texts and the stories and the articles and the, the, the media that speaks to them. Um, so the topics we're toiling over are there. I don't know if there's any you want to hear more about, but they're pretty self-explanatory. Um, uh, and. Um, I'll leave it to you in case you want to ask any questions about that in a moment. And to finish up, Sean, I think I'm ready to go to the next <coughs> one. 
So <coughs> of all of the work that we do in these professional learning communities, a couple of years ago we started in the ninth grade. And I work closely with the middle schools, so I get a sense of what they are doing. Um, and we kind of reviewed um, and revised and revamped the ninth grade, both skills and content. We aim to identify a couple core texts, common skills, um, common assessments during the mid-year, during the final, and then um, at least two units that are common for all students. So we value our autonomy, um, and, uh, but we also understand that students need to have an equitable experience regardless of the teacher. There are six, seven teachers who teach grade nine, six, seven teachers who teach grade 10. Um, and we're passionate about what we do, so to come to a decision on many of these topics is hard work. Um, we study student work, and we use that as data to make, make choices, make decisions about moving forward. So um, grade nine, genre studies, grade 10, American Lit, and grade 11 is the biggest change we worked on 10th grade last year, 9th grade two years before that. Uh, for two years we worked on 9th grade. 10th um, grade last year, and then this year we're taking on 11th grade, which is a big effort for us because typically 11th grade has been British literature. So we are now making one of the biggest shifts in the three grade levels by shifting to world literature. Um, and I thought the most interesting of that work to share with you would be these essential questions which guide our, uh, they shape our curriculum and they shape our scope and sequence. Um, these are the primary sort of umbrella essential questions and we have five or six that fall under these categories um, and we shape our learning or reading or writing or talking around these questions. Um, so to come up with these questions has it takes about, it took us about four or five years. There's a lot of decision making that leads up to the essential questions, the enduring understandings. Uh, and we've adopted, you know, some new texts that are contemporary. Uh, I've put some of them out over here um, to reflect our, uh, uh, our, our new student body, our, our changing student body. They're more contemporary pieces. We do have a nice balance between sort of our, our classic works that we love and uh, contemporary works that will appeal to our students, we hope. Uh, we also allow, uh, we're adopting a lot more uh, choice so that students can engage in independent reading and lots of book groups and lit circles. Um, and um, there's one other thing that's a pretty big change for our students. And I don't think I have it on my notes. Um, the choice, I don't remember. I'm sorry. Um, is there anything else over here? Well, the typical, you've seen The Harbinger and maybe Sachem. Um, and I think I'm happy to elaborate on anything or answer any questions. Uh, could you just give one or two examples of the literature that you use in grade 9, grade 10, grade 11, even if yes. they're over there? Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I put the newer texts up here. So some of the newer texts we've adopted for grade 9 uh, is the Jennifer de Leon um, text. 
that I think many of you are familiar with. Don't ask me where I'm from. And um, uh, uh, with the fire on high is another text that's contemporary that ninth grade students have read for summer reading, but the ninth grade teachers feel that they want to make that part of the school year. It's gone over quite well in summer reading, and so they would like to do that with the students. Um, and then they do Lord of the Flies, they read Romeo and Juliet for some older texts. Um, some of them are uh, still reading Of Mice and Men. Um, they read A Raisin in the Sun. They have a pretty hefty short story and poetry unit as well. 10th grade, um, the core classic texts that we are maintaining are the one is Gatsby, um, The Great Gatsby, and uh, the contemporary one uh, is for teachers to choose between either, um, let's see, reminder over here. It's a good thing I have this. I am not your perfect Mexican daughter, or um, the sun is also a star. So we like to have one required older text, a classic text, and one or two more contemporary. Um, tenth grade is where we do heavy choice, lots of choice for tenth grade students in what they're reading, um, and uh, lots of um, establishing a foundation for peer review when it comes to writing. So in grade nine and grade 10, uh, the 10th graders took that foundation of a process for peer review, uh, peer response when it comes to writing, and we built on it so that hopefully by the time our students get to junior year, they're comfortable talking about writing. They use similar language when they talk about writing. They know how to speak about it constructively, um, and they're pretty much helping each other. Um, and learning from each other by sharing their writing so much, so developing that confidence. Uh, and grade 11, world lit, we're in the midst of this. So we haven't even written a description for the course yet. So we came up with these essential questions, and um, I think we're probably in agreement that there's going to be um, some sort of maybe gothic or fantasy, Frankenstein perhaps, uh, and then a newer text right now, teachers are working with Exit West, um, which is a contemporary text. And uh, in fact, Seth, uh, so you know, the nice thing about English is we can try these out on students, either in small groups for their lit circles, or in one year, you know, we can try a text out and, and um, kind of gauge how responsive and uh, it, it is with the students, and if we need to, order more the next year. If it's a text that we decide we're not going to adopt as core for every single student, it's used in the independent reading and the small lit circles. Um, students try books out for us as well. So Exit West, um, in fact, in, in Seth Sarnecki's junior English class yesterday, or it was yesterday, I think he had an international correspondent from the New York Times talk about refugees, immigration um, in the United States and across the world, across the globe. Um, and that was uh, relevant to their reading of Exit West. So that's the new text there. Still don't know if Shakespeare's gonna make the cut for junior English world <laughs> I think. <laughs> in fact, we do have a junior, junior English teacher offering a workshop on um, 
teaching Shakespeare in a culturally responsive classroom. Uh, so that's one effort we are making to um, help each other, help our colleagues teach Shakespeare and still make it relevant and accessible. And again, if you want to take a closer look, those are some of the new texts that we've adopted. Uh, Kathy? Um, so in the very beginning, you talked about listening versus reading. Is that, I listen to books all the time, and I love it. Like it just, it puts me in a different mindset, and it's fine a book versus, and I read, because when I read, I fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is, what is going on with that? I, you know, I, I um, just a couple of days ago, a student in class said, I can't, I don't have time to read a book, so I listen. Um, I listen to and I love it as well. I read the book I'm teaching every time I teach it. And so sometimes it's nice the 15th time over or the 10th time over to listen. Sometimes it's nice to listen to it when you're out for a walk and it is effective and it is powerful and I share the listening with my students, especially when I find a good reader. And I talk to students and I think we all do. It's definitely an option, it certainly is. But um, I like to communicate to them that especially for younger readers, or um, kids who don't like to read or think they're not good readers or they're slow readers, it is important to see the text as you are listening. Uh, that's how you, you develop your reading skills and literacy. I also talk to students about when it's a good time to listen and when it's actually you know, time to read. Um, we spend more time in the English classroom reading and writing than we ever have before. We ask ourselves on a weekly basis, why are we covering more, less, you know, why are we covering fewer and fewer texts than we were even five years ago? Just five years ago. And it's not COVID. It's not. It's a combination of technology and, I don't know, um, stamina I talked about before as well. So where we used to send kids home to do their writing at home independently a lot, and they're reading at home independently a lot, we are doing the bulk of that in the classroom. The higher level kids are doing a lot of the reading on their own, but the writing, I just spent six days with kids writing consistently, drafting, peer responding, and revising, and we didn't used to do that. So that's, we used to have them write independently on their own at home, and hand in the final project, project uh, product. It's technology, it's uh, you know, chat, artificial intelligence, making sure they're doing, the, they're writing themselves, but being available to them to ask questions as they write instead of when they hand in a final product and it's maybe too late to make some changes. So working with them on the drafting stage more heavily than just waiting for a final draft. Reading with them in class and modeling close reading and, and reacting to what you're reading. So we are not covering as many texts as we used to, and that's why I had depth over uh, breadth, and, and that's fine with us. We just wonder why is this happening, and we don't fight it because it's not necessarily a bad thing. Can I just add, because Jane and I have had this conversation about universal design for learning, um, or you'll hear people talk about UDL, <clears throat> and the question about audio versus text, and accessibility for students. One of the things that we often talk about is 
and you mentioned this, Jane, like what are we teaching in that moment? What is the standard that we're trying to accomplish? And when are the times when you need the text in front of you, like close reading, for example, which Jane brought up, there may be times when you're gonna to need to draw evidence from the text to support an argument that's very hard to do from an audio. Um, so that you're probably gonna to need to be going back and forth. If we're trying to talk about theme and talk about you know something that's more of a big idea, that may work well from the audio. So it's really looking at what's the standard we're trying to teach, what's the goal, the learning goal, and that pairing, and it's a conversation that's happening pre-K to 12, across disciplines, not just in English. Um, and we're all kind of grappling with, you know, how we give that accessibility and build the skills and, and make the right. I help kids learn to make choices I think it's well. interesting because, like, if a kid doesn't like to read, they're not going to read. Right. You know what I mean? They're just, yeah. they'll read what they want to read. Mm -hmm. And some of, the, some of the stuff that that we offer is just hard. Yeah to read, like I was talking to my husband the other day about great expectations, mm -hmm. you know, going back <coughs> to read it, because I've been reading a book about this, and, um, reading a book about just, reading? I, <laughs> no, it's but, tough, believe no, me, no, I've done it. Great, no, but it was about great expectations, yeah. but, um, you know, would it, would we get more kids interested in reading, right. if they're listening, listening yeah. to it as well, you know what I mean, because it, it kind of takes you away in a sort from like your everyday life if you're sometimes listening versus, you know, just yeah. get some interested more in. Sure. Yeah, it's not something that we um, we communicate as a bad thing and we don't fight it too much. And same thing with AI and chat. You know, it's, it's, it's we're only in the beginning stages of those questions and conversations, but it's there and it's useful. And listening, just like listening to a book is entertaining <coughs> more than reading it yourself. So. Still, like the research that comprehension is better in in, uh, in books than it is in audio or screen media, even that there's so, so much skimming going on. So I think it's great for those of us that are out for a walk and they're listening something that's not learning based. But in terms of really learning and making those distinctions, it still looks like books is king, and um, and that just must. And I, I would love to see everything go to digital and trees not being cut down for books, but it, in, the, in the business of developing brains, it really looks like the books are king still. Paul? Yeah, I had a, <clears throat> you mentioned technology a couple times and on the previous slide. I think it was one of the things you were toiling over was, was no technology, so can you talk about that a little more? Um. Well, it's a distraction. So um, it, while it's really useful and helpful, kids are using their devices to take notes and to do their assignments. And so when they have their device out, because we're talking about an assignment or a text, quite often there's something else on the screen. Um, and so it's hard to monitor and it's a distraction. And so I, um, and we, and the phones as well, which the phones, you know, go away, but um, it, it's it's almost too much of a distraction so that I shared with one class, and Cass, I'm not sure if it was your class. Was, yes. Yeah, I think the next text we read, 
I am going to ask that they do their note taking on paper. And I want to experiment because they are good students. They take notes, right? They're reacting and interacting with the text. Uh, and they take notes. And um, they have to have their notes out sometimes for conversations and discussions and the work they're doing. But when the computer is up, there's tons of other stuff going on. And it's fine. It's, it's part of being a teenager and being in a world where everything is at your fingertips uh, and being easily distracted. Um, so I want to try the next text where we read from the book and we take notes by hand so that when we're doing our class activities, we don't need the device to access our notes. Just to see and learn from the kids too. Like, how was that for you? What did that do for you? How did that work for you? Um, I don't think that I see more than, if, if kids are doing an activity and they're finished, a phone comes out. It's like it just comes out, they're done. They're not distracted in class. They're waiting for other kids to finish, but their computer is up and their phone is out. I don't think I see more than three kids in a class of 20 who just sort of sit and wait. And, you know, that's okay. That's not their world. Their world is to see, you know, what's on the screen next. Or they're very, um, they multitask. They're very busy kids and they're very capable kids. What would you hope to get out of kids taking notes on paper versus a computer? But um, I would hope to, to eliminate the distraction during classwork time, during class discussion and activity the number of times you might hear a teacher ask, you know, devices away, phones away, let's just talk and not use our screens. Um, so I would hope to eliminate a distraction, and it's, you know, it's something I do, I try to do a little bit each week, but the kids have information on the computer that they need access to, mm -hmm. naturally. So it's a good and it's a bad, it's a distraction, but it's also obviously um, really helpful too. They collaborate great with the and they don't, I don't think they may not write as well or respond as well by hand, right? So you get, when you ask students to hand write an essay, um, I don't know if you get their best work. And this is why it's, it's hard, it's, it's something to be toil over. If they can't edit and revise their thoughts as quickly and efficiently by hand. The other one I have was character education. So I don't even know if that's the right term, but um, because we're reading stories about um, some tough topics and some wonderful topics, um, we're reading stories with content that's hard, um, violence, um, death, love, companionship, friendship, betrayal. Because we're reading our characters, our taking us through all of these emotions and experiences so we can learn from them and their triumphs, their resilience, their tragedies. Um, we're able to talk about some real relevant topics, but we can use imaginative literature to do that. And it removes a stressor and it removes, um, you can talk about something that isn't personal because, well, it is personal but it, you don't have to make it personal because you're using the character to talk through some of these behaviors and experiences. So teaching 
the power of compassion and resilience, um, kindness, hard work, how to come through tragedy and suffering. We teach all of that through imaginative literature. And hope it carries on. Um, thank you for your time tonight and also the dedication and time and effort to make the English and all the teachers in the English department to make this even a much richer curriculum. Um, it's wonderful. It's not an easy task to overtake, especially the UBD. Um, my question for you is on the grade 11, what was the initiative to change from the British literature to world literature? Was it a directive from this Department of State or is that something that your department over undertook? That was something we decided together. Um, we decided that and there are, we used to have a world literature course here as an elective in the 12th grade years ago. Um, and we do have a non-Western literature course as an elective um, for 11th and 12th graders. Uh, but, but we decided, um, we thought it was really important for kids to have a world view, um, some, some uh, perspective and exposure. And the frameworks have a bit of world lit. Uh, they're very heavy on, on British literature as well. So we thought a nice way to transition into um, some of this culturally responsive teaching and getting kids ready for life outside of high school and all the people they will meet in their you know, jobs and in their colleges and education. Um, windows and Mirrors as well as an initiative. All of that pointed really pretty clearly towards world literature. It's tough, right, because the kids aren't necessarily drawn to something that's foreign to them or, or, or. so, um, but it's pretty common, I think, in high schools to have, Britlet is pretty common still, but I think world lit makes a lot more sense and it's exciting to us. We may, we may not be as expert in that area, which is why the professional learning community is uh, really essential. Thank you. And thank you for your time and your attention and I know, um, don't feel compelled to go over there, but I'm going to leave it up. And uh, you don't get breaks, do you? Uh, no, not tonight. Um, but I'm going to uh, have to hold you there for one more second because I have to channel Paul Bucca, who is no longer with us. Um, on, and on, on the board. On the board. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe he was coming in by the aisle tonight. Um, do you, well, you know, his phrase was, do you have everything you need? <clears throat> but uh, I'll, I'll alter that to what, uh, if anything, did you, um, like, cut out of your, you know, if, if we could have all the money in the world, what would we want to provide? What did you cut out? Because, obviously, you don't have all the money in the world because we don't have all the money in the world. So, um, I think the easy the answer to that is pretty logical. It's books. <laughs> We're managing, and um, you've always been quite supportive. I don't even want to say what the book budget was when I started this job. Do you want to hear it? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> I think you do want to say it. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I've been doing the job as department chair for a 16, 17 years. It was close to $20,000 when I first started. I, I mean, now we don't have textbooks. Like, it's not like math. We're not adopting this huge textbook program. Individual titles. And $20,000 in one year 
for many years when I first started. And now it's, and we're managing, we're managing now with, I think, 3,800. Um, we, we have a beautiful book room. It's not enough because, I mean, so we're figuring out when to teach what. We don't all teach the same book at the same time. And we have to sort of, you know, we have to make things work. Um, so of course it's books, uh, it, more books um, would always be helpful, but we're managing. Um, and I did, I know, I know Paul Bupka was the one who used to have that question, and I didn't know if anyone was going to ask or not. I like the way you put it. That was smart. <laughs> to say, what do you need or what can we do for you? Because you don't, I don't know. I put it down in writing. It's over there. <laughs> it's at that little table. And it's, it's, it's honest. I'm just going to say it's honest. I would say our staffing in the English department is, is, is perfectly adequate uh, and having more books is better than fewer books, of course, and in an effort to, let's say, move away from British literature, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, toward uh, world literature, we'll take the adoption of more texts, yeah. <laughs> and to do that, we'll just take an investment in texts over time, and to do that in one fell swoop is difficult. Also, with teachers' capacity to adopt multiple books and new units in one year is, is a real challenge. So I'd say staffing-wise, we're in really great shape. Books-wise, we have a really great book room with lots of resources, but you could always do with more. And so Jane and I met to talk through her budget, and the goal was really invest in the world, the kind of the movement toward world literature, and that that will be a multi-year effort. I just, I just, yeah. here we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were on your way out. I'm so sorry. sorry. <laughs> uh, all right, let's just go around the table. I just have to, I just feel compelled to share one thing um, because I, I just am so appreciative of your thoughtfulness and, and everything that you put into um, the curriculum and the worldliness of it. Um, is that I've learned of in the last. I don't know, a couple of years, many kids graduate who are majoring in English. And I just had to share that because it's clear that you're t creating a love. And um, a friend's son, had she had just shared with me a supplemental essay that he wrote. Um, and he's majoring in English. And in the question, and he just chose to, it was just a small one. And he said, and I, I don't know why. People ask me, what are you going to do with it? And he said, I don't even know, and I don't have to know right now because I want to be curious and I want to be a well-rounded citizen. Like it was awesome, and I just wanted to share that with well, you. Well, thank you for sharing that because we do often feel as though it's a dying art. It's, yeah. it sounds strange to say that language and literature and English and it is a dying art, but it seems that it's not a path. It's taken this you know, world of STEM, and um, and so it's really nice to hear that. I thought you might like that. Students who's mm -hmm. embracing English, right? Yeah. She has about four different English classes. Yeah. Did I, did I miss someone? Um, I was just going to ask a quick question about <clears throat> the adoption of new, new books and the line item of uh, about $3,800 to replace books. I assume that, and maybe I'm making this, I'm a science teacher. <clears throat> so when I adopt books, I adopt giant textbooks. But. Um, <laughs> 
so so like my my guess my question kind of is are a lot of the books that you're currently using are those in the kind of in the public domain so essentially you're paying for the publishing of the actual book or and adopting these newer t books if they're not necessarily in the public domain are going to cost um, significantly more money to to run that adoption over time and is how's that I guess my question would be how's that being factored in from a budgeting standpoint like I would assume that a a Shakespeare textbook probably hasn't changed a whole lot, or a book, I should say, hasn't changed from like the $3 price it was when I was in high school versus going out and looking at some of these newer books um, that could be 10 or $15 a copy, for example. The newer ones that are more expensive. It used to be that if something was in an Oprah book club, it like <laughs> skyrocketed. Um, so it's, the price of books do change over time. Um, and these newer paperbacks that are up here that we're starting to purchase over the course of a couple of years um, cost anywhere from, I guess, 9 to $15 each. I will add that you are correct, like, uh, and this is not in the English department, but in social studies they read uh, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, which I think is in the public domain, and so those copies are much cheaper, and they're around the building, like, and you can simultaneously teach that text to a bunch of classes because the text itself is cheap. Um, I think Gatsby, as old as it is, is not in the public domain, I think. And so I think it, it just recently did. It just did. maybe recently yeah. did. But then you're looking at $15 a copy times, you know, dozens or hundreds of copies, and it does get kind of pricey, but not on the scale of a textbook adoption. But then, again, for a textbook adoption, you might only do that once every eight years, 10 years, something like that. So, I mean, it's a balance we strike, and we have these conversations about what the priorities of the department are in the next year and two years and three years and we budget accordingly. And, and there was a Russian European <coughs> literature course for many years so we've got those books sitting on the shelves that you know we can tap into for world print as well. The collection is, is wonderful. Matt? Yeah, forgive me because this is probably now obvious. Um, I just want to make sure I'm hearing this right. Makes sense. So you we only teach books that you can supply the students with text in the school? Yeah. So there are times when um, kids will have to take a book out of a library. So with the, the choice in reading, independent reading or reading with a book group or a lit circle, when kids have a choice in what they read, we don't always have those copies or we don't always have five or ten copies. And so they might choose to get their own copy. Um, or sign it out of the library. But the whole classroom books that we teach with our, all of our students at the same time, um, the Gatsby's and the, you know, the, the Lord of the Flies and the Raisin in the Sun, those books are purchased with the line item budget. But they might, we might only on hand have enough for four class sets, so you might be teaching four, you know, one teacher who teaches three sets of freshmen might be consuming all of the copies on in the building of a certain text and another teacher might have to wait and you just have to kind of like manage around it and plan on who has it next and that's yeah. something that English users have been doing forever. Yeah. And, we, and the copies aren't in great shape because they're put in backpacks and yeah. but so just to follow on because it sounded like earlier on when you were talking about one of the reasons why you're reading less books, you're covering less books and it sounded I wasn't sure if you were, you sound like regression as opposed, as opposed to progression. I, like, is it because you don't have enough books? No, I mean, no, 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 uh-uh. It, it is because, um, it's not because we don't have enough books, not at all. 
I, I didn't, I hope it didn't, I hope you didn't interpret it that way. It's because we want to do, we want to work with students more on their reading and writing. We want to see them do the writing and help them through that process as they're drafting instead of sending them home and expecting the final product a week later. We want them to read in the classroom so that they are reading um, and write in the classroom so they are writing and not accessing papers and essays online. Um, and so it's, it just, you just are a more effective teacher we're finding these days if you work with students in the midst of that process of reading and writing instead of just expecting the end product. You know, read 50 pages for Wednesday, we'll talk about it on Wednesday. Plenty of kids read at home, depending on the class and the level. Um, but it's a check and balance, too. A one way for teachers to make sure kids are engaging in the work and doing the work, uh, at least during that class time. But it's not because of the lack of textbooks. Okay. Last chance. <coughs> Quick run. Thank you so much. So, Michelle, you are welcome to stay the entire meeting. <laughs> you are also welcome to head home and start your evening, so it's completely <laughs> up to you. Make usage of it. Thank you. Um, okay, MASC, MASS Joint Conference update. Sure, so um, Stephanie, um, Kathleen Howland, and I had the privilege of attending the MASS, MASC Joint Conference. Mm -hmm. um, I did provide in your packet the Delegate Assembly um, report on actions taken on the resolutions. Um, I will channel Kathleen, you know, these resolutions take some time actually to become legislation and have an impact. So there's a lot of time for input and feedback. Um, I think it was another great workshop, um, you know, conference. <coughs> I, I attended a, a few sessions. One uh, session that I attended was the Worcester Public Schools, um, talked about their development of a transportation department. So they talked about bringing it in-house and what it took. You know, it was a three-year process. Um, I left thinking that I don't want to get into the transportation <laughs> business. Um, but it was, it was um, great to hear about what it takes, the commitment it takes. And they also provided some great tools to do an analysis of, is there a, a cost benefit to bringing transportation internally? So it's something that um, was great to learn about, uh, great, to, great to hear. Um, Stephanie, do you want to talk about a conference? workshop you attended? Sure, I attended a workshop, um, a panel of leaders from the Needham Public Schools about the work they've been doing and their approach to equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, and sort of how they've been approaching that work and sharing some of their samples of um, communications and sort of their strategy in that respect. So that was interesting. And then Communicating in Polarizing Times was an, another mm -hmm. session mm -hmm. that we attended. We so Chris Horan, who's worked with the committee, uh, presented um, some useful, pragmatic suggestions and strategies around how do we communicate when um, you know there are very polarizing topics uh, to discuss. So that was very, very helpful and very, very pragmatic. I have to say that my first conference was in 2008. 
and he taught it then, yes. and we were polarized then too. Yes. <laughs> Polar job security. Polarization has endured. Yes. yes. I went to a number of sessions uh, and with a lot of K-8 reps from South Borough and North Borough as well. One was on, boy, legal issues and special needs, and I'm so glad that we have peace. <laughs> in our kingdom. It's really frightening how big those get, how acrimonious and expensive they are. And so that was, um, it was interesting and I went to uh, a revamping of the Medway social studies system um, toward equity and uh, writing the historical narrative and seeing it through many lenses. And so I was like a 1600s Muslim woman um, in this story that we all engaged in. And so it was really good to, to get in, for me, in my intellectual curiosity, just to kind of get into the classroom experiences or the actual curriculum. But I was deeply saddened there was not one session on the arts, any kind of arts, and I regretted that. So next year, put in a uh, mm -hmm. pulse. Yeah. Uh, they do have to put in at some point. So if you um, have a chance next year to attend, it's, I would know. recommend it. I really do find that there's a wide variety of things. And mm -hmm. you know, it's our tribe, right? I went with you before, Sean. Yep. And the conversations are great um, and within the sessions. I think really meaningful and helpful to the work. All right. All right. Uh, then let's move on to the budget. Oh, yes. Can we get back to uh, legislative update just for a second? Yeah. I was just curious how that meeting came about with the senator and the two reps. So uh, Senator Kennedy reached out and asked if um, we'd be willing to meet and have a conversation. Um, as a result, um, state reps asked if they could join. So we actually toured Peasley Elementary School. We had submitted a statement of interest for Peasley and the MSBA program, so they wanted to tour the facility and advocate on the Northbrook PK-8 um, district for um, being invited into that program. And then they also wanted to learn more about Algonquin Regional High School. So um, it was an invite. They reached out to us, which was very nice. It's fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> I've never heard of that. Yeah. No, it was. Um, well worth the time and um, I think it was you know a, a great connection we have relatively new senator and, and new reps so trying to rebuild those relationships and they're keenly interested in more in partnering with us and advocating uh, on our behalf great thank you okay now budget <laughs> Sean wrong wrong slides <laughs> not the right. Can't take uh, take the blame for that one. There you go. <laughs> All right. So this evening, I'm um, pleased to present to the school committee the FY25 preliminary budget. Um, as you all know, the budget re really is a vehicle to try to accomplish larger goals. It's not really about the money, but it's what we're trying to achieve and impact in terms of student experience. Um, Vision 2026 educate, inspire, and challenge plays a critical role in our budget process, um, which is our mission. It's quite simple, uh, but not easy to achieve. Um, really thinking about how do we educate, inspire, and, and challenge all students is something we work toward every day. Our vision, so you, you learn from Jane Vitar some of the work that happens in the, the English department, and really we're 
trying to develop students who are collaborators, critical and creative thinkers, communicators, socially and civically engaged, growth oriented and healthy and balanced, and who are really ready to be citizens um, when they leave Algonquin Regional High School. The budget is just that, it's a process. So although I'm presenting to you this evening the preliminary budget process, um, many more meetings and conversations and iterations of the budget will take place over the next uh, several weeks and months. Um, but the budget process does start early in the summer in August when we really sit down with the leadership team and talk about what are the budget goals for the upcoming fiscal year and what are the expectations of NASA, what is the timeline and when are due dates so that we're all on the same page as we begin the school year. And then September, October, Principal Bevan and directors work closely with educators. Principal Bevan works with his department chairs and really has questions and, and conversations around what does your department need. Those requests come in to Sean um, and then into the finance department to Becky and those are aggregated into a preliminary budget. Um, and again, that requires a lot of input from educators, the leadership team, and the central office to make happen. Um, so this evening really is a culmination of that work that took place to develop the preliminary budget. Um, and then again, this will be the starting point to continue the work and really move to a recommended budget for the school committee. It's hard to believe it is December. I'm still wondering where time, where time has gone. Um, but January and February, um, we get much more data around the budget. The governor <coughs> releases, um, her, will release her budget um, at the end of January. And we'll use that information to continue to fine tune and update our budget based on um, the governor's budget. And then at March, we'll hold a budget, uh, public hearing and then April, um, town April and May town meetings in North Rome, South Pro. So the budget is really driven by budget priorities. So the school committee plays a really important role in defining what the goals are for the upcoming fiscal year. Um, so what is um, before you this uh, evening is the FY25 approved budget priorities, and I will not read uh, through these um, bullet by bullet. Um, these are very familiar for, uh, to the school committee. I will note that uh, something that is new this year from past years is a little bit more uh, specific details about each of the budget priorities. For example, under empowering learners, um, one specific bullet is to fund the recommended curriculum replacement cycle and explore alternative curriculum cost models. So Jane Bitar talked about the budget for ELA being $3,800. We also have a um, curriculum replacement or textbook replacement um, budget where each department cycles through a replacement. So over a, a five to six year period, every department has an opportunity to have a significant investment in either literature or text. And then again, equity of opportunity. So um, having Michelle here this evening, we really um, are hoping to expand experiential learning opportunities for juniors, juniors and seniors, but also for freshmen and, and sophomores where appropriate. Under educator uh, learning and leadership, this is my daughter. So. <laughs> She only calls when she needs money or her car is <laughs> <laughs> not working. Right. So. Yeah. 
Um, so educator learning and leadership, um, so really thinking about creating a special education team chairperson uh, position to really orchestrate and conduct all the work around special education. And then um, finance and operations, although many of the bullets have to do with capital projects, um, I think the school committee thought it was important to list these as priorities. Um, one is to seek and achieve net zero, so really thinking about energy and energy usage and water, um, thinking about opportunities for solar. Last uh, month's meeting we heard from a select and a potential opportunity. Um, also thinking about creating a special education stabilization fund, so there's variability from year to year in special education. So one way to make the budget process more predictable is having a special education stabilization fund that will give the school committee an opportunity to not only um, fund the excess and deficiency, but also have other means to fund other uh, stabilization accounts um, for uh, specific uses. And then utilizing uh, field rent, uh, rental revenues. So again, we're coming to the conclusion of phase one of the, uh, the athletic complex, really thinking about how do we um, think not just in the short term, but also five to 10 years when there will be repairs and costs associated with maintaining uh, the facility that we have. And lastly, something that the school committee talks about each and every year, which is develop a sustainable contribution uh, to the OPEB unfunded liability. So how do we create a mechanism to fund that account? Um, because it is something that the longer the district waits to fund that account, the larger um, the investment will be in future years. So those are the, the key um, budget priorities the school committee has set out. Um, also, I did provide the school committee with um, the fiscal year 2025 budget memo. So Becky and I really sit down and talk about what are we anticipating um, some of the um, challenges for the upcoming year, what are some of our projections, and we're, we really provide the two towns what we think are, are the best projections for the assessments to each of those communities. Um, the assessments are really hard to predict. Um, I think over the last several years we've been fairly accurate, um, which again helps each of our community towns um, budget for what they can anticipate for the assessments from Algonquin Regional High School. So in fiscal year 2025, the budget impacts that we're, we are experiencing really is general education transportation. Um, we are seeing um, an increase in costs in uh, general ed transportation in the preliminary budget. Um, the school committee really has an opportunity to go in two different directions. Um, we are in year four of uh, our contract with NRT. It was a three-year contract. We had the ability to extend it one year to a fourth year, which we have, and we also have an opportunity to extend it to a fifth year um, to close out the contract. The fixed increase in the fifth year is 2%. If we were, go, if we were to go out to bid and rebid transportation, uh, we are anticipating a 20% increase at a minimum in terms of regular ed transportation. There are um, some concerns about NRT and its ability to deliver quality service, not just at Algonquin Regional High School, but also in our pre-K through eight. So the, the conversation and decision to move in a, a certain direction really needs to be in partnership with Northboro and Southboro School Committees. Um, 
so in the budget before you, the preliminary budget, there was a 20% increase in transportation that is embedded in the preliminary budget as a placeholder for future conversations around what direction the committee would like us to take. Um, special education out of district tuition, again, the variability from year to year, we are seeing um, an increase in special ed out of district tuition. We've had a few students who've moved into our district. Uh, we are obligated to provide them with the least restrictive environment. And for, for some students that are, that is attending schools outside of our district. Special education transportation has been a significant increase. That is something that districts across um, Central Mass are experiencing. Um, so this is a budget impact. Supplies and material costs, although inflation has moderated certain areas of material costs where we are seeing uh, still being impacted by the inflation. But it, again, it's, it's much better than it was two years ago. Last year was also an improvement. So we are seeing um, improvements, but there are still impacts. Insurance costs, so we work closely with our um, insurance um, consultant to really try to project what the insurance uh, increase will be. Um, in the budget before you this evening, there's a 10% projection of increase on health care. And then ESSER phase out. So we have been the benefactor of ESSER funds, ESSER 2 and ESSER 3. Those funds need to be expended by the end of fiscal 24, so the end of this year. We've worked hard not to create structural deficits within our budget <coughs> using ESSER funds, but it's really hard not to do. So one of the impacts is some of the, uh, the purchases that we placed on ESSER 3 now have to be placed back into the operational budget, and that is having an impact. Those ESSER 3 FY24 expenses include purchases of student and staff devices. Um, we did uh, have a tutor to uh, do some recovery from the impact of COVID for some of our students, and then translations. So again, the total of ESSER funds that offset the FY24 budget that now need to be moved onto that FY25 budget is a little over $140,000. Inflation, so just a, a quick look at inflation. So thankfully, we are no longer in the seven and six and a half percent inflation. Um, so we are at 3.2, which again helps, um, helps with the power of the dollar and the purchasing um, that we need to do in the upcoming fiscal year. Just a quick note on the two types of budgets. There's many types of budgets, but these are the types of budgets that we typically talk about, a level funded budget. Um, which is basically the prior fiscal year appropriated budget is the budget amount for the upcoming fiscal year. With a level funded budget, it, you have to make reductions to live within that, um, that amount. In my tenure, and I don't, I don't know if Joan or tenured members of the committee recall ever having a level funded uh, budget at the regional level. Um, it's not been a reality and I hope it never is. It's not a good place to be. Um, a level services budget is using, um, is really looking at what are the costs to maintain services that are currently um, available to students um, in the prior fiscal year and really what will it take to continue um, a level service to our students. I would say where the regional school committee has fallen is, is a level services budget with incremental growth in certain areas um, year over year. Just a quick um, review of the fiscal year 2024 20, budget process. So you'll see um, initial budget requests, um, the row with preliminary budget, 
the revised preliminary budget and the school committee voted budget. So at this time last year, um, with a preliminary budget, um, you can see that the preliminary budget was at a 5.57% increase. And this just is, is a benchmark for the committee to see how it compares to where we are this year in the preliminary numbers. So with all of the directors and, and the leadership team at the high school and the finance team really looking at um, the, some of the costs of electricity, um, healthcare, the budget initial budget requests came in at a little over $30 million, which was a 12.88% increase over fiscal year 24. Um, we applied circuit breaker reimbursement. That is an, a, a fixed number that we know, which was $682,180. And that brought, uh, brings us to a preliminary budget of uh, $29,332. Twenty-nine million three hundred thirty-two thousand three hundred forty-three dollars, or a ten point three one percent increase. So we are in a different uh, position than we were last year at this time. However, if you did a four or five year look back from FY twenty-four, you'll see this is not a skew of where we've been um, at this time in the past. Just as a, a kind of a, a benchmark. Um, we always think about what is a 1% increase. So 1% increase is uh, $265,903. That just gives us a baseline of, of what, uh, what it will take to either increase our budget or uh, reduce our budget. So in the fiscal year 2025 uh, budget process, there are many proposed positions um, by the leadership team, um, central office, and the school committee. Um, so this is just a summary of the positions that were requested. Requested, These positions are not included in the preliminary budget number that I just presented. Um, so it's a 0.2 FTE adaptive uh, physical education teacher. It's a shared position across the three districts. So the regional portion would be 0.6. Um, assistant director of multilingual learners and equity. So this is a position um, that again, that is shared with Northborough and Southborough. Um, that's $34,000, that is to support the work of um, the director of multilingual learners and really having a more of a focus on equity. An, an ESP, a human resource generalist, a library ESP, um, a point two of a speech and language pathologist, and a team chairperson, um, and five varsity assistant coaches um, for $20,000. So. The total FTEs is 3.36, um, which is a little under 1% um, in terms of the total impact of the budget. Again, these positions are not in the preliminary budget that I'm presenting this evening. Budget offsets. So um, again, I shared with you the first budget offset that we always apply is circuit breaker tuition reimbursement. We also applied the FY24 circuit breaker transportation reimbursement. Um, so again, the total offsets was a little over $680,000. So the fiscal year 2025 preliminary budget um, is at $29,332,343, which is a preliminary budget increase of $2,741,997, which is a 10.31% increase over fiscal year 24. So some of the items that are 
that are included in the FY25 preliminary budget are textbooks. Um, so the science department is looking at um, replacing some textbooks. It is their year to have um, a more significant investment in, in their text. Um, student and staff devices. So as the committee recalls, we are moving to um, Chromebooks issued uh, and purchased by the dis district for a one-to-one. -one. We are moving away from uh, bring your own device. And then learning allies, ally software. So we talked about audible books. Learning ally software takes um, texts that are, aren't typically available in audible um, and provides a place uh, where students can actually listen to their textbooks um, using this particular tool. So it's been very, is a very beneficial tool. So the total of instructional materials that are in the budget that are kind of above and beyond um, what we typically expend is at $137,918. Historically, if we look at the past um, five years, um, I think the regional school committee has been very modest in its request for budget increases. If you compare the average of inflation to the average of budget requests over the five years, um, the budget requests, the appropriated budgets have been under inflation. So, um, and you know, again, we've been able to maintain a high level uh, quality of, of experience for our students. Um, but again, we're at the point now where um, I think a greater investment in the regional budget it, um, is appropriate. So. Um, in terms of next steps of the budget process, so um, the next step really is if we have these preliminary budget numbers. Um, we're working with a leadership team on really thinking about what are the priorities, what are the goals, what are we hoping to achieve. Um, we are waiting for the state budget numbers, Chapter 70, Regional Transportation Reimbursement, Circuit Breaker. Becky and the finance team are really looking closely at health insurance, heating and cooling, we're looking very closely at transportation costs, um, really fine-tuning the, the budget number. We'll take all those reductions, which really don't impact the student experience necessarily, and see where we're at. Um, and then at that point, we'll work closely in collaboration with the leadership team and the department chairs on thinking about, you know, what does a 4% budget look like? What is the impact of a 4% budget? What does a 5% budget look like? What's the impact of a 5% budget? What is a 6%? And we'll have a various uh, menu of scenarios for the school committee to consider in January uh, to give you some direction around, okay, what does what does a 10% you know, budget achieve? What does a 5% budget achieve? And what is the impact of maybe making some reductions? Um, so very preliminary, a lot of work left, um, and we'd be happy to answer any questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I assume usually you talk about it this time too, although I, I know the town is getting a new administrator, so I'm not sure how closely you've been able to, you know, telegraph and communicate with the town and then telegraph to us in conjunction with the Northborough budget about where things sit. So we've had some preliminary conversations more with Southborough, the Northborough, the Northborough town administrator, I think is, is a week and a half on, on the job. Oh, they're actually on the job, uh, okay. Yes. So we, um, we have provided them with as much information about the pre-K through eight budgets as well as uh, 
um, after this evening, we'll provide the region the preliminary budget to um, the town administrators. We also have provided the memo, um, kind of our forecasting memo to um, both town administrators. In our assess in our projections of assessments, this year is a bit unique that without applying excess and deficiency to the to the budget, we're anticipating about an eight percent increase in assessments to each of the communities. If E and D is applied, um, we, we use six hundred and seventy five thousand um, dollars. The budget assessments to each of the communities is a little under five percent. It's about a four percent increase increase in assessment. Very rarely do we have parity in assessments. Usually we'll have, you know, one is low and the other is high, which, which complicates things. So our projections, um, you know, communicate that there most likely will be, if E&D is applied, about a, a four to five percent increase on the assessments, which is manageable. A detailed question. Sure. sure. Uh, the, the, the Chromebook part, is that purchase or leasing? Purchasing. Purchasing is yeah. is um, is there an option to lease things that uh, you probably explored those things? We are exploring, place. you know, uh, leasing equipment. Um, so that's something that um, Ryan O'Leary um, is looking into. I think for this particular budget cycle, it's purchasing. Okay. Um, and we also um, we have a pretty detailed uh, replacement cycle, a four-year plan, and. Um, you know, that spans actually not just at the high school, but it also spans the middle school to the high school. So um, that's something we're looking at. But leasing is something that we're interested in potentially exploring a little bit further. Um, I think it was last meeting we spoke about <coughs> the, the capital needs and the, the yeah. kind of multi-year plan will take us to make sure the facilities are updated. That is separate from what's included in this budget or is it? It is separate, so that is that that is a, a um, separate budget um, from from what's recommended this evening. That's a capital. Uh, that'd be another a different assessment to each of the communities. And later on the agenda, we do have kind of draft for an article and the four capital projects or five capital projects that we're recommending to move forward um, for each of the communities. Just wondering what the approach is on <clears throat> the number of positions that you, I guess, are not included in this budget. And I noticed a number of them were on last year's list as well, although we did a number of last year's <clears throat> lists. So I just, I mean, how do you go about figuring out which ones of those you might? Yeah, I mean, I think, thankfully, it's three point, you know, it's, it's not a lot of Yeah, positions. most of them are not a lot. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I think part of the, the next process is really seeing where the next level of work brings us in terms of percent increase and then having conversations around what are the priorities of those positions. Some of those positions aren't a, a large dollar amount. Um, for example, the five assistant varsity coaches is 20,000. The portion of the adaptive PE teacher is $6,000. Um, so depending on where we are with the budget increase, um, I think we'll start with the team chairperson position. That's a priority. Um, my my prediction, though, is that we'll probably be able to tackle some of those smaller positions, the smaller cost positions, the assistant, um, you know, just coaches, uh, adaptive PE, and um, what was the other one? Assistant director. Assist maybe the assistant director, but that's a shared discussion yeah. amongst the yeah. 
library ESP is this one? Yeah. That'd be good. I mean, you got to believe anything that's been on there for a couple of years is sort of do. Yeah, I mean, I think that what, what um, we're looking at is similar to capital having, you know, a three to four year plan. Like, how do we, if we keep asking for it, you know, what, what is it going to take to accomplish it and having a, a multi-year plan to accomplish that? Yeah. Um, and then at some time, at some point, it will be a commitment to, for the committee to raise the budget increase to accommodate some of those positions. Also, Sean is doing a lot of work around what are the current resources that we have, the labor resources, the physical resources, and are there opportunities to deploy those in a different way to accomplish some of those other positions that we hope to bring on. Okay, moving on to grants and donations. Um, so if maybe you could just give a like, two-sentence overview of the grant donation, and then when they're done, we'll take uh, <coughs> One, one motion for all of them. All right, so we did, uh, I'll, I'll start with the first one. We did read, uh, receive from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, we were or rewarded um, fund code 274, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act Part B, uh, federal targeted special education in the amount of $44,725. So um, that is to help support our special education work. And the regional portion of that is $12,872. So that was the yes. whole discussion. Yep. And then, Sean, do you want to talk about the... Sure. Uh, the Harbinger School newspaper uh, did a <coughs> donation slash subs subscription drive and received, sold several donations and also sold ad space. And so the sum totals are listed there and the, that funding is used to help offset the printing of the newspaper and also to other things with the newspaper like field trips and then additionally um, we approached our student council approached several different area businesses and banks and um, received some very kind donations to help support our winter ball which uh, happened uh, just last this past Friday and was a huge success and couldn't have been uh, done or um, could have been done without those funds but it, those funds helped keep the cost down and reduce the ticket price for our students Okay, so do I hear a motion to accept the grants for, from IDEA for $12,872, the multiple donations to basically through the Harbinger for $3,058 and $991.50 totaling $4,049.50. More multiple donations from the Harbinger totaling $599 and more multiple donations from area banks to support the winter ball totaling $3,000. Do I hear that motion? So moved. So moved by Paul, seconded by? Second. Joan. Uh, any discussion? All those in favor? That is unanimous. Okay. Superintendent's report to the committee. We have uh, principal's report. Great. Um, our first element of the principal's report, as might have seen in our slides, are um, our wonderful student representative, Cass Mello, is going to tell us about her student news. So, Cass, I can drive if you'd like. Um, Writing Center met to make cards for hospitals. 
hospitalized kids for the holidays. There have been a number of winter concerts, including from the school's um, sorry, unity groups, and as well as community course concerts, and the uh, actual student performers in the building as well. We've had multiple spirit weeks. We had the Harbinger's fall issue come out. The Smile Project Club is currently running a toy drive, um, and winter break is coming up. So there's a lot of buzz in the air about that for students. Some major concerns, I believe, at the last combined school committee meeting was brought up about um, the homework policy. So we can move back to that later. But um, some ideas that we've been thinking of as a group were wondering how it would work with school breaks, <coughs> or if there could be more leniency for makeup work. I know that some kids who've been out with COVID these past few years have been out for a week or more at a time, and then they have a few days and they get back to typically adjust and submit all of their work. And so. Um, some leniency maybe there with working with teachers, of course, might be um, important to address. For the spring professional development goals, we're as a group researching AI a lot these days. I'm one of the students that's going to be uh, presenting on AI at the National Writing Center um, Conference this spring. And so um, it's a major concern now for a lot of students, particularly with the humanities classes, as Ms. Mitar was describing in her presentation. Um, and so we'd love to get involved in any way with that. For um, the Gonkplex spring schedule, we love hearing updates on <coughs> if there's any winter storm delays and when the full opening estimation dates are expected. Um, this is important for us to be able to plan events, including we're hoping to plan a powder puff on the newly opened um, football stadium and some other events on the multi-purpose field. So, um, some major questions that we've been thinking of lately are the status of the policies we proposed last year. We understand that the policies can take a long time to move through government, as it is so, but we'd love to help at all if there's anything we can do um, or any support that can be aided there. Um, we'd love to hear more about the changes to the wellness day scheduling plans and whether or not it will be more about spreading them out throughout the year or adding additional ones in the spring, depending on how the loading of that will work. I know that a lot of students um, found great support with them and others found more concerns with uh, having a lot of tests on days surrounding them. Um, but that is a major thing that we'd love to also be involved with. And then we would love to start as a group trying to create some kind of um, centralized events page. We know that, that there's a lot of events that go on in our school community and it can be difficult to keep track of them without a um, formalized process for this. And so we were looking into possibly um, with the help of Mr. Bevan creating an athletics or clubs social media manager positions for students to give them another opportunity for leadership, which they can hopefully take, um, especially for the social media marketing students that are hoping to pursue that in careers in the future. So giving them some experience while in high school, as well as supporting a need that our district may have. Um, and that's all I have. So thank you so much. Any questions? Sure, I can respond to a few of these things, and these are things Cass and I had talked a little bit about, but uh, so just to you know, respond to some of the things we've talked about, Cass, um, maybe I'll start from the bottom and work my way up. Um, we are working with, and Mike Monserino, our athletic director, is uh, working to develop uh, social media manager positions that will be credited, uh, done as kind of a credited course, and those are students he's interviewed out of the sports and entertainment marketing uh, class, and they're there's a real eagerness for those students to get the real world experience of running a social media, uh, a, a large social media enterprise, which is really what our school's uh, athletic department would provide. And 
a very marketable skill after here. Every major college has the social media, real social media presence, and that would be something that he's working to do and also will, as I've explained to Mr. Masterino, and I'm sure he understands and is excited about it, will take things off his plate while also enhancing our social media reporting. So the ability to, for example, report scores of every game is something way beyond his ability and his capacity, and yet with teenagers who are gonna be doing this work, so he's, he's going to start to do that, and we're looking at potentially using that as a model to expand it outward um, to, let's say, the fine performing arts or some of the academic areas or some of the other areas of our school that uh, people are aware of things that are happening or they might be aware only through our main um, social media presence, uh, but to make it more uh, better reported, more robust, more complete, and all those things. So uh, that's one thing that we're, we've started and we'll probably in the next month or two, I think we'll have a lot of progress on. Wednesday scheduling that is a real going to be a real uh, focus area in the spring as we develop our academic calendar based on the, the school calendar. We're going to really have to look at where uh, how we place certain different different things uh, from the high school uh, uh, against uh, the school calendar. Specifically, how do we plan, let's say, the end of a quarter with uh, the mindset that a wellness day might be in there and the end of a quarter and the final end of quarter assessments do start to pile up around that time and if there's a wellness day there, which is what happened this year, it does have, it creates a bit of a challenge for uh, teachers to manage and when teachers are having a hard time managing it, it becomes a real stressor for students. So that's something we're trying to avoid and it's a very high priority for us going into next year to get that right and make it, uh, make wellness days uh, um, operationalize wellness days so that they uh, have the desired effect to give students uh, a stress relief and not to just simply move that stress around into a shorter number of days, which is the feedback we received. Um, and then I, maybe I'll pitch it to you, Greg, about the status of the policy. Sure, so the Joint Policy Subcommittee did meet several times this year. Um, also, what was uh, discussed at the Joint Policy Subcommittee meeting was the proposed policy that um, was brought forward last year um, as a recommendation. So that work will continue at the next Joint Policy Subcommittee meeting, which is, I believe, in January. And then we will have another meeting in um, March or April. And then the other topic uh, that Cassie talked about was uh, homework makeups. Um, we do have a hand handbook policy that um, it's lengthier than what I will, uh, I'll just give you the, the, the top line summary. It indicates that students have uh, the same amount of time uh, to make up work or twice the amount of time they have to for a student to make up work is twice the duration of the absence that they've had. So that is what our handbook says, and that's what teachers should be following for students who missed a week for COVID. I really would suggest that they or would instruct teachers to have two weeks. I don't know that it would ordinarily take two weeks for a student to get that work recompleted, but usually we, for a student who's out with COVID for a full week, we would uh, work with them through guidance and through their assistant principal to help reduce that workload, manage that workload, and. I'm not aware that that's not happening, but we can talk about you know places where it can be improved. Or I, I don't know that any new policy would need to be uh, implemented. But maybe better communication of our current policy might be there might be any there. So any other things you wanted to talk about? And you kind of covered uh, AI on your own, and uh, Don Flex. I don't know, uh, Superintendent Marno, if you want to respond to that. Uh, we're uh, the athletic complex continues. Progress is kind of slow, slow and steady, or we're kind of like intermittent, in fact, at this point. Um, in the past week, the um, uh, construction began on the amphitheater. So, if you follow along uh, on our social media page dedicated to the athletic complex, the uh, 
infrastructure for the amphitheater began to be erected this week, um, and the stands uh, were in a bit of a holding pattern until the press box can be completed and installed. Um, and I think those are the remaining big pieces. So I think it's safe to say, Cass, that um, there will not be any winter storm delays this year. <laughs> so, never, um, never seen that. We are, no, we are, we are, I would say 98% of, of the way complete, and we have some target dates to finish in the next several weeks, um, and we're confident that it, there will be no delays for a grand opening in the spring. Uh, currently, our uh, winter track, uh, because the weather has been so warm, has been using our outdoor track, of course, uh, and, and getting a great deal of usage out of it. And uh, you may remember the disrepair our, our former track was in. And they, they feel uh, they're very happy and excited about what our current track looks like and feels like under under their feet. So we're very excited about that. Okay. Any questions for Cass? Not really a question. It's um a comment about the, because it was me who brought up the homework policy, and I, I remember we talked about it last year with Mr. McGowan and yourself, and I agree with you that I think it's definitely more of a communication, like, to the staff. This is our policy, and we should be adhering to it. Because I remember always being appreciative, and thank you, uh, about the break, the break-free, you know, breaks. I mean, the homework-free breaks that were always very refreshing. Um, it's so I think it just needs a little bit more of reminding to the staff about, you know, and when we talk about our wellness days, when we think about assessments, I like to know what kind of assessments that we're giving. It doesn't always have to be an in-class, you know, quiz, test, you know, regurgitate things back. You know, is it a project-based learning thing or um, a video or a choice-type assignment that, you know, it doesn't always have to be something in class. I just wondering about that's just something I'm throwing out there um, and then the social media um, thing I think is great but I think it's also something that Michelle Kalen can get involved in and get the kids I mean involved is like your tech club right like that's a perfect example of something that the kids can do as an internship or a, mm -hmm. uh, I think that that's what you're going along the lines of anyways but that would be perfect for her to tie it into some kind of work-based learning experience. So. Yeah, that's what we're aiming for. Yeah. Okay. So I will just give you a few quick updates, and then we have uh, joining me today, uh, tonight, our uh, assistant principals, Kathy Cormiani and Andy McGowan. Uh, I will just give you a few uh, quick school-based updates. One is that since we last saw you, um, and I haven't really reported too much out on this, but we've shifted a lot of away from how we used to communicate to our rising ninth grade families. Um, I've done some feedback uh, gathering from our ninth grade families, rising ninth grade families, the families who are currently in eighth grade, to find out what information they'd like from us and in what format and at what time of the year. And the answer was pretty much they'll take any information at any time in any format. Um, they just, the high school is uh, it's a bit of a mystery to rising eighth grade families. It's two different towns. It's a much bigger building, much bigger student body. And so we kind of leaned into the, that kind of chasm of, of, uh, of, not, of misunderstanding and have offered multiple different ways that families can gather this information and we've gotten good feedback on that. So we've replaced what used to be a one night, hour long, in-person uh, presentation in October here in our auditorium and we replaced it with a welcome message with, which was really kind of deeply embedded with a great deal of text and links and resources that families could consume at their own 
uh, leisure. We had an eighth grade parent night that was actually um, an evening uh, or a live virtual uh, event um, that actually is, it's an eighth grade parent night. I can't remember if we did that in the evening or in the day. Um, I think we did that now that I'm saying it out loud. We did it during the middle of the school day in the hopes that parents could kind of do it during their like workday lunch. It was live, virtual, it was also recorded, and the recording uh, was trans uh, translated in the home language, including um, kind of the transcript was translated and instructions on how to watch it on YouTube in its translated form. So we're trying to reach out to our families for whom English is not their home language. And then we had a uh, in-person coffee uh, with the area just leadership team with um, um, <coughs> of the building for anybody who wanted to, to, uh, to take that. So, um, so we, we've replaced kind of this old model with a new model that just has more dimensions, more features, more access points, and um, that was just like um, a few other things. What was the response on that? Um, so we got, uh, we probably got about the same attendance at this um, eighth grade parent night, but even though it was kind of a lunchtime uh, seminar, um, we got about probably the same numbers we would have gotten at that night, but we then subsequently sent it out in virtual, you know, in a recorded format. So I don't know how many people have like downloaded and watched it, so that's a bit hard to measure. And then that coffee with the leadership team, we had about 15 families show up for that, um, and about 10 stuck around to take a tour of the building. I think the goal of, from those families, what we were hearing from them was they just wanted to find, feel like what the school is like when there are kids in it, which is really hard to replicate when you're at an 8 p.m., you know, um, auditorium-based uh, presentation. So uh, we're going to try to keep our, and then since then, uh, we had our, student to our students from uh, Trotter and Melican over the course of three days came up and toured the building uh, last week. Um, so at this point, we, I think we've done much more than we've ever done before. And I think those families, my hope is, are feeling better informed about what the high school is like. Our next stage will be to, in February, share with them the course selection um, process, which be a little bit overwhelming, but now that they have all this new, all this information, they don't have to, um, they'll only have to focus on course selection and the kind of the mechanical implementation of that stuff um, in February. So we're excited about where we are, getting at least kind of up to speed on the high school. I have one question <coughs> on the uh, welcome message. What kind of resources went out with that? Um, so I shared the portrait of a graduate, I shared uh, the school improvement plan, and I shared our program of studies. Just as like hyperlinks, but in addition, I shared kind of like an overview of like statistics about our school, how big we are, um, kind of our administrative breakdown, like some of that kind of big high level information about, you know, like uh, almost like a summary of the high school uh, for anybody who was just curious to know about it. And then uh, more detailed information that they could go and drill down and find if they wanted. Good. I just remember when I, my first kid came here, I was really impressed with the program of studies. Mm -hmm. Especially, I mean, the business, I remember the business one, they had a table outside, and it was like, you know, single space, two sides of this thing, all the courses they had. It was just really impressive, so. Yeah, I think that speaks to our electives program is right. incredibly robust and deep, and there's just so many offerings. It's, it's, um, it's like a community college almost in a way. Yeah. So that, um, that has not changed, that still is very exciting. And so that was linked in that, uh, that as well. I don't know if it would be too overwhelming, but I know in the past for Algonquin students during the uh, course selection period, there's often videos that teachers or former students of classes have made, particularly about electives, that I think have been really impactful for me and some other students. And so I don't know if there's anything that could be done to encourage that with the middle schools as well. Or I think like from what I've seen, the course selection descriptions have a large variation from um, teachers that really go into depth about like which types of literature or 
um, subjects are really included in the class compared to others that are more um, general. And I wonder like, if there's anything that can be done to make those more robust. I think those are good points. Uh, the reality, uh, the unfortunate reality for freshmen is they don't have a huge number of mm -hmm. spaces in their schedule for electives to really enjoy the, the real variety we have. Um, their schedule um, is, is pretty, it's filled up with a lot of uh, requirements, and then that, those requirements, as they are met, as students get deeper into their high school career, their uh, electives opportunities expand, and that's where you really, you really see them starting to access those things. But uh, nonetheless, I think it's important that the the few electives offerings they can access, they're making a really informed choice about how to do that. So I think we can look at ways to do that. Um, so just an update on some of our key initiatives that we are undertaking this year. I will just move through this very quickly, but we're at about halfway through the year. This is when I start to inventory how are we doing against the goals we set early in the year. Student attendance is something I've talked about at length, so I won't spend too much time on that. We have already uh, rolled out some new communications tools and some strategies. Um, and we are looking at the next four to six weeks developing, developing some new interventions for our tier two students. Those are students who have like attendance that could be improved, but isn't truly like, you know, uh, dramatically poor. So um, that's our next area of focus. Uh, student engagement is an area our staff identified as something that they want uh, to work on together. Uh, it's something that I think any school at any time in the history of schools probably would be looking to improve on, but coming out of the pandemic, a lot of schools as I have identified that Students uh, are harder to engage now, and that the style of student is just different and requires different uh, kinds of instruction than maybe before. Um, career exploration, we talked about, and you've met uh, Michelle Kalen, uh, so she just came on board a month ago. Sons of Suicide is a program that was initiated and we started and brought to full completion um, for half of our students in the last month. Uh, the other half of ninth graders and 11th graders who have or were not taking health or PE in the first semester will take that in the second semester and look at that training. And then we have a youth wellness coach who's joining us um, in January as part of that grant that uh, you might recall Dr. O'Connor explained. That person will be here for five years on a, uh, two days a week and they start in January. And then uh, we also mentioned the athletic complex is uh, inflation. So those are our really big categories that we were uh, tackling this year with great enthusiasm. And then there are a lot of smaller ones, but these were the big, the big buckets. So I thought I'd just share, uh, do kind of a uh, dip sticking for you on what um, progress of each. Okay. So I'm going to pass along to uh, Kathy Carmignani is going to join us here. So Kathy, why don't you want to come on up? So Kathy is our assistant principal and she also, in addition, or part of her job as assistant principal, she does all our master scheduling, which is as glamorous as it sounds. Uh, and it requires a, a lot of uh, mastery of a, of, a, of a power school and she ends up having, resulting in this preternatural understanding of our class sizes and all the other things. So she's going to share some of that information. Sure. So what we did um, is I wrote down by department, um, the top is the number of cl uh, classes that have students of 1 to 3 size, then 4 to 10 students, 11 to 15 students, 16 to 20, 21 to 24, and then 25 or more. Um, you can kind of see the span. We've gone through and really reduced, we used to have a lot more in the 21 to 24 span, and we've been able to kind of reduce it back into the 16 to 20. Um, most of the ratios, um, the actual like, student-teacher ratios are about 16 to 62. They range from right around 16. Um, so if you look here, you can kind of see the spans a little bit better. Um, when you look at most of the classes, we have about 
service to students. It's a nice balance and, and, and something I think we can be really proud of and thankful to this committee and our communities for. Um, we do once in a while tip into the 25 plus range and I, maybe you can data. speak to, you have a little bit of data on that. In each of those cases it's, it's kind of an unusual circumstance and even 25 students in the classroom is not really unusual in American public education but in our school we like to try and keep that below that and where it happens Usually there's a good good reason for that, and then maybe you can speak to that. Sure. So I kind of um, backtracked it for you for a couple of years. So um, if you look, it's consistently health and fitness will have classes that are maybe at 25. Um, and that's really more based on like a scheduling constraint that we just need to have that extra person in there just so that it fits the rest of their schedule. Um, this year, our freshman English, we have one freshman English section at 25, and that was that was really due to um, a student that needed to change a class and we wanted to make sure that if they didn't have such an overall, um, an overwhelming impact to their regular schedule. Um, and the teacher was consulted before we did that as well. So like I said, our fighting performing arts were really, that's exciting for us, that those numbers are going up. Um, in math, we have two classes of AP statistics at 27 and 28. Um, and the reason, you know, we could have had a third section and made those lower, but talking with the teacher, they really do a lot of project-based kind of work and discussions in groups, and she felt that that was a good size for her. Um, and by having that the way it was, we were able to lower class size in, a, in another class, so that's positive for us. Um, in science, that AP Physics C, um, that was 
purely, we had a transfer that came in, and in their previous school, they were in that same class, and we wanted to make sure we were able to give them that same experience. So the teacher was very, the teacher and the department had worked together to make sure that that happened for that student, so that was exciting. I see here that math, calculus H and algebra 2H, they say 25 and 26, but they're in the 21 to 22 bracket. No, so that, if you look, um, the those first, are those are years, the 21 to 22 is school year 2021 to 2022. Oh. So this is like a three year look back. So the category that we're on now is school year 23, 24. Oh. Yeah. So we've really, if, if you, can, you can see that we've really tried to make sure we don't have many classes over 24. Thanks. Uh, going going back to some of those charts, uh, the, the the not that one, that one gives me a headache. Sorry. The, uh, yeah, that one. Um, you know, just thinking about staffing and the budget impacts, and I realize it's, it's not all one for one things, but like a little bit of concern with world languages having five. Is that right? Five sections are. 10 students or less? Is that, is that yeah, what so that indicates? That's probably more in our, if I go back and look, I think that might be some of our French classes. Kathy, um, are any of those the ones that are sometimes combined in like in the day-to-day, -day, although they're listed I as? I tried as much as I could to make sure I combined them. Okay. So they were truly one section. Um, I think, you know, this year we had French one and French two. Um, the French one wasn't gonna be able to run and the teacher allowed it to go into French too, so that they could run that class for those kids. Um, so they're trying to different things. I think the numbers are probably closer to 10 than they are to four by any means. I hope so. One of them is, yeah. uh, our, I'm sorry, Sean. Yeah. Um, I think one of those is our Portuguese section, yes. um, which okay. we uh, have invested in. Oh, the really new native. The, I'm sorry? The new native, yep. yeah, okay. Um, and then we are seeing flagging numbers in French, and that's not the only school where that's yeah. happening. Happening, um, you know, as our student body size has shrunk, um, where that's being seen are fine and performing arts. French is another area, and again, in other schools, similarly, yeah. that's uh, that's a, a dynamic that's applied. As well. yeah. One of the things to note too this year that we did with health and fitness is that we were able to have a wellness class for our students that may um, our rise students that enter in the rise program as well as the students that may be a transfer and that need that kind of smaller section to be able to um, kind of ease their transition to Algonquin. So that class ran first semester, this first semester and has done some really great things around the school. And just, just mm -hmm. a general comment too, over the past 10 years, we've seen um, enro enrollment declines um, that were projected by NASDAQ um, we are at the floor right now, and over the next 10 years, we will um, again increase enrollment uh, about 300 students. I think one of the, the commitments the school committee has made over the years is not to, um, not to resize based on declining enrollments. Mm -hmm. We invest a lot in our people, our teachers, and having s smaller class sizes means better connection, um, more connections with teachers, um, and that's really served us well. So now it's really thinking about as we build back enrollment, 
you know, what will it take in terms of, of adding potential staff? We don't want to get into a place where we've reduced the staff member, yeah. now we have to hire the staff member back. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I, I asked about that um, because there are other areas like English that have 11 sessions, you know, yeah. and I, I, I know there's various reasons. I just wonder, um, I, I just have some concerns about the world language section in general and making sure that's as robust as exactly. it is and, and, and bringing, <coughs> As they said, like performing arts, bringing more kids in, and I, you know, uh, I'm um, just interested in why that is, but in general, yeah. In some of those sections, um, in that four to ten, is part of our rise program, so those numbers are um, specifically lower. Yep. So that's at least two yep. sections in each of the main core classes. Joan, um, thank you for getting the detailed uh, on this, especially the second slide after this one that talks about that was my first question was going to be what is the 25 plus yes. so that was really helpful um, what I really was um, concerned on on that one there there's only one if you look in the year 23 24 you go to the science is that one class of physics because yes. okay. but, but so in your thing you said two, two classes right because the AP physics lab is a separate class it, it joins in with that Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. But it, we do account for that in staffing, so I count it as two. It's the same room with the same 25 students. It's the same, same students, but it's a separate. Okay. 25 students in the lab? Yeah, that's fine. It's a pretty big room. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's yeah, a, I hope that's so. That's the ceiling. That, that should yeah. Be. Yeah. And, and, and I'm so glad to see through the history yep. is that 25 plus is has really decreased the number of classes so thank you to Sean and the administration for getting that down and the teachers trying to work so thank you very much I'd say too like the nice thing is when I go through and when you schedule we're able to fit like the, when I run the schedule I'm able to honor 90 like we can fill at 96% getting students their first choice of classes Wow. so that's really important for kids that they're really able to get a personalized schedule that's really good. Thank you. And just as a reminder, particularly for new colleagues, that when you look at the string orchestra, the numbers are small because only Southborough has a strings program. So Northborough's was eliminated, and that is a really small ensemble. And we can wish that that would be better, but that would mean, you know, somebody was studying privately in Northborough. So a lot of uh, that's been a longstanding issue, just to make you aware of. Thank you very much. Any final questions for Kathy? Um, are there any, I'm just curious, are there any current plans with addressing the world language concern to keep the French department? Like, are there any um, like explaining the Portuguese? I can share a few things just I was thinking about as you were talking, Sean. I think there's actually a lot of really exciting things happening in the world language department right now <coughs> that are in collaboration with the middle school and um, Right now on the Southborough side, we have an elementary language program. Um, but the Emily Squires, who's the department chair, the work that they're doing around um, the syllabi literacy, the heritage language programs, um, is really adding new dimensions to the department. They're also really looking at alignment to the standards around proficiency level and um, our courses being aligned to proficiency level. 
um, and then doing that work with the middle schools. So our professional development is now, we're having more alignment from elementary through to the high school, um, looking at assessments together, calibrating kind of how we're teaching and how the learning is happening. And I think all of that is gonna make a big difference. Um, we're also educating families. So in terms of the seal by literacy, Emily Squires is going to the LPAC meeting, which is our multilingual learner families. To educate them, they, their last meeting at the LPAC was focused on how do we help our children learn English. Their next meeting is how do we help our children keep their other languages. And so one of the things we want to do is educate them about our heritage language courses and about the seal of literacy, which our students take in many, many languages. So there's a lot of exciting work happening that um, we'll continue to share with you all. Thank you. So next we have uh, Assistant <coughs> Principal uh, Andy McGowan, who's going to give us an overview of our students' uh, standardized achievement. Yeah, good evening. So um, we, every year we go through the past five years when we look at our standardized uh, test achievement. We look at the AT testing, the ACT, the SAT, and the MCAS testing. So starting with the AP testing um, for the score, in regards to the scores, you can see that um, there was a dip in our uh, percent of students from last year to this year, and over the past five years, they've dipped as well. But we're still at, and that's that uh, column on the right there, we're still at 85.85% of students earning um, a score of over three plus. So in comparison to kind of where AP says we need to be at, we're still doing very well there. Um, you know, we have our department chairs look at this data and review it uh, with the teachers who are uh, doing the class, and that could go for pretty much all the testing that I'm gonna talk about here. You'll also see the participant numbers are down a bit as the years go on, and that's directly correlated to our enrollments as that has dipped as well. So there's a direct connection there. Um, in regards to ACT testing, the five-year five comparison is relatively close in all areas uh, to the previous years. The mean score is this year increased in everything except the reading, so we're up a bit more in the ACT testing. And uh, SAT testing, um, our number of students participating in SATs uh, is dipping a bit. The column on the, excuse me, the graph on the left there is a comparison of similar schools uh, according to DESE. Um, so DESE has a formula that they call DART that compares us to similar schools with similar populations. And you can see that the yellow bar in that column is uh, relative to this year's testing uh, SATs. So that's a bit lower, pretty much right across the board. Um, and that's for a couple reasons. One, our enrollments are uh, dropping with that too just like um, our school enrollment, but also a lot of schools are no longer requiring SATs as entrances. So um, for the most part, I threw a couple of central mass schools in there, and you can see that we're pretty much in line where everyone else is too. Um, so that, those, that's those three items there. MCAS data, so a little bit background on this. This 
uh, you'll see the last five years. This is kind of a mix of various testing types. So in 2019, we had a computer-based test. <coughs> 2020, it was waived by the state. 21, it was a paper-based test. 22 and 23 went back to a computer-based test. So um, this, just a little background on the data that you see there. The class of 2023 was the last class that DESE had a waiver for, for the science, technology, and engineering test. Um, and last year, as many of you know, the state changed the scoring criteria for the class of 2026 20 through 2030. 20 so ELA passing score uh, was a 472, is now a 486, which brings it up to pretty much the same standard as math. In science, the passing score was a 467. It's now 470. Uh, so Mr. Gowan, can you just explain on the left-hand side what EEME, what those sure. nations stand yes. for, and then it'll be make, make it a little easier to read across. Yeah. So EE is um, exceeding expectations, and that's kind of the top, the old advanced um, criteria that the state used to use with MCAS. And then ME is meeting expectations, PME is partially meeting expectations, and NME is not meeting expectations. So you can see on all four were significantly higher than the state in percentage of students meeting um, those top two uh, tiers and lower in the bottom two tiers. Um, so in when talk about the new scoring criteria and kind of just taking our data from this past year and last year's class and looking at it if we applied it to the new scoring criteria, it would impact less than 2%, less than 3% of our student population was taking MCAS. So um, while it was a kind of a big media frenzy, that it really wouldn't have minimal impact here, and our teachers are adjusting to what they need to do to prepare for that. Um, so our departments all look very closely at the data, and in their PLCs and in their uh, team meetings and so forth, they really kind of pour through everything. Um, just to kind of break it down a little bit, um, as far as ELA goes, they've increased their percentage of students. We've increased our percentage of students exceeding expectations from 2022, so you can see the difference with that there. Our teachers in ELA um, are taking the time to review essay questions that the students have on MCAS and go through the questions that were asked on the previous test and then apply similar questions to the current work that they're doing in class. They've gone back to their uh, assessments, uh, specifically midterms and so forth, and have modeled those after MCAS and what a student may experience when they get to MCAS in the spring, um, so that students have a little more uh, experience with that. And as the test gets closer, our ELA teachers are focusing in on some of the previous questions that the state has used in MCAS so the students can kind of know what to expect. They're getting into practice tests online so they can experience the platform and really doing everything they can to um, help prepare them for it. Our math scores in both uh, meeting and exceeding expectations rose this past year. Um, and math has hired recently a Title I tutor, uh, provides additional supports to our students um, who need it. Our science, the bottom chart there, uh, those percentage, the percentage of students exceeding expectations did drop uh, in 22, but this is consistent also with the state in that particular area. And exceeding and meeting expectations both continue to do uh, well above the state. 
Science has also created additional supports for students who need it. There's a, um, we, actually, we utilize our Canvas page for students who may need a retest or anything like that to kind of get some uh, additional supports to prepare for any kind of science retest or, um, or even just the big test. So just a quick kind of summary. Our teachers look at very closely the specific questions and where we are dipping a bit from year to year. So they'll take out the question, whether it's an essay question or anything like that, or a math question, science question, and review that thoroughly to see where our grow areas are and also to see where our strengths are. And they um, take a good look at that to try to adjust the curriculum and the content so that our students are prepared for uh, the upcoming test. So maybe I can just add on to that. There's no single way that we'll do item analysis or, or analysis of our results to see where we need to grow. <coughs> One pretty time-tested and effective way to do that is that our English, uh, our Jane Bitar and our other leaders will look at item by item and um, even though we will out, our students will outperform the rest of the state on every item, there are, are, are questions where we won't outperform them by, by quite as much and wherever we're closer to the state on average, that's, that indicates a, an area where we can probably grow the most. So that's usually where we will identify the areas that we need to spend the most time with our teachers to, to shore up some weaknesses and, um, and work on that with our students. We'll do that in English, we'll do that in science, we'll do that in math, and that's a way to just continually make progress. Yeah, and I think our use as a district with the uh, program with the analytic view will help with their kind of dissecting that data too. Not all of them have all the access to DESI's data that um, like someone on the department chair level or administrative level may have. So I think the analytic view will help them to kind of see some of that data a little more closely as well. And lastly, um, this was uh, really neat to see our top two tiers for students, which isn't necessarily in this chart, but our top two tiers is exceeding expectations and meeting expectations for specifically a subpopulation of students with disabilities rose significantly in all three tests this year from last year. So um, that was great to see. And our, that just uh, speaks to the work our student support department does with their students as um, they prep for, for MCAS. Can I just point out a couple, yeah. a couple of things? If you go back to the AP testing, so one, one important thing to note is the college's, college readiness. So students who score three or higher in particular is a strong predictor of a student's ability to persist in, in college. So I think that's, that's very important. The next slide. And then if you look at college readiness benchmarks on ACT, um, and you look at English reading and science, compared to the college readiness benchmarks. Again, far above uh, what the benchmarks are, and that's a great predictor of success in college level courses. And next slide, with, ACT, uh, with SAT, college, college readiness benchmarks is 480 for um, ERW, and math is 530, and if you look at ours, again, well above. Students who do choose to attend college after Algonquin uh, find great success in college, and, and this is just some data to support that the work teachers are doing, Algonquin is doing, is really supporting students well. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, 
all this data is commendable, right? It's like we're, we're a high-performing school. It's always great to see this amazing data, and especially as you just perform, uh, mentioned, the students with dis disabilities and all that achievement. That's what we want to see. That's what we're here for, um, and thank you for that. Um, if we could just go back to the AP testing data, because what, what I see when I look at that slide is, yes, now we've gone down to 424 students, which is like 40 less than two years ago when we had 468 students, but our number of exams has gone up dramatically. And so I correlate that to be, and our scores go down, so why are so many kids taking so many tests? Because we're always consti constantly talking about stress. And yes, it's important to be college ready, but we, I don't think we have to take four and five AP. You know, Cass, I'm talking to you. It's OK <laughs> to not take all these AP exams Absolutely. in AP classes. You know, we, we just, the mentality about that it's just, it's okay to take two a year and not four or five. And I just. Now, that number jumped, it pops. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and our guidance staff does an excellent job talking about balance and schedule and with, when they're talking through schedules <coughs> with our students. Um, it's, it's a really good question. And, uh, and I can speak at least on the adult side that our staff does really push for balance and schedule. And, some cases that doesn't always happen, but um, in many cases, students do recognize that, and families recognize the need to keep that balance too. Yeah. The question is, is <clears throat> I don't know how much of that, or if any, is, is a reflection of offering more AP courses that kids are just interested in. Um, we have not added lots and lots of new yeah. AP courses, so I do think it is <clears throat> a just a kind of a societal and uh, community-wide, just uh, there's a, a appeal of AP and the brand rec name recognition of AP as a, uh, you know, a standard of excellence in American public schools is, remains high and maybe is increasing even in reality. I would just add, Sean, I think there's a lot, we can disaggregate this data and actually come back with um, you know, what AP courses are offered, how many students are taking the various APs, how many are sophomores, juniors, and seniors, how many are taking three or more. So I think that'd be really good data. For I think it is good data. Kathy, can you get on that? <laughs> so, so there's a whole, you know, we have a lot of disaggregated data that we could share with the Yeah, I think that really would be interesting to look at because it's, yeah, because it's especially for, if they're spread out, you know, versus all taking them in one year and so forth. Kathy may be able to speak to a little bit with the EP. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, there's two things that I'm wondering about. I think the students now have to sign up for the test by November, and I think that changed the mechanism that students don't necessarily know where they're going to be attending school, so that they need to sign up for that test because they're not sure if where they're going to will want the AP test or not. So they're trying to make sure that they do that. Um, and I think when seniors look at it, they also know if they take the AP test, they do not have to take a final exam in that class. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. 
Yes, and uh, not totally related to that, but related to our other data on, on course enrollments. Our course enrollments in most of our APs are healthy in the 15 to 24 range, <coughs> and our enrollments in some of our, our niche uh, electives courses that we really are excited about but are not APs struggle a little bit. So that's where you get your lower numbers, and so that definitely is, I think, the lived experience that you're describing. Um, and that's, um, I think that's the reality of our school currently, and we're not alone in that. I think you're, you've spotlighted something there. Isn't that a case-by-case -case basis, though? I mean, yeah. I don't think you can make a blanket statement that nobody should take more than two APs at a time or something like that. There are schools that have made, you know, dictated students can't take more than two in their sophomore year and three in their, you know, they'll make those. Often it's driven by a concern for student stress um, and that students sure. are stressed and the school make a kind of a push to make that decision for students. That's just not something we've done. And there are students who take no AP courses and are college ready. Right. And, right. And that's, that's a bigger story. It's not yeah. about right. because they're taking AP, they're college ready, or because they took the SAT. It's the comprehensive experience Algonquin provides students, all students, that makes them college and crew ready. Um, so again, this is this is one part of the story. Um, and I yeah, think, and I mean, again, I, all the data is amazing. <clears throat> We're great. It's awesome. I, it's just that con concerns me. That's all, because we always talk about stress, mm -hmm. right? And. I, yeah. Look at that compared to the last Metro West right. survey. It's just, you know. And, and, you know, when we talk about those wellness days, too, I mean, you think about this AP curriculum, it's, you can't take a break from that, you know? And so that's hard. So. I do have to say, um, for me personally, I think the school has set me up really well for the APs I have and am taking. And I think for a lot of students, it, turns out to be sort of a natural progression based on your interests. There are people that certainly load up, but I think when you look at the data, you can see it's, it is, I mean, a little bit more than doubled um, based on the number of exams, but I think there's a lot of people that are really interested in a lot of different subjects. I'm taking like a language one and then an English one, and then <coughs> um, you can, they can take multiple that are very different and you can feel comfortable in. I think teachers do a great job of pairing students and guidance counselors really do a great job of um, recommending them. I think also, in general, the homework that I'm receiving as a student that I think is common for many is for um, math, it's more of like an everyday, like you get a couple pages of work and then for most other classes, including my AP classes, I don't see that kind of heavy workload or stress and I'm really enjoying mine, so. Thank you. I'm sorry, is, is your experience, would you say, uh, your colleague, your peers feel similar? Yeah, I definitely know, um, I have two friends I can think of that are taking six AP classes each, oh, and that's crazy. they are both having so much fun, and even though they're stressed, oh. it's a lot, it's, um, it's sciences that are double blocks, you get a lot of extra time and support there, and then um, in general, I think that people who have set themselves up well through like the education that we have and have taken advantage of extra support from teachers over time and are really curious about things can um, do really well and succeed in a number of subjects. Can I, 
ask something? Oh, I think maybe there's a contrast to those who take AP classes in language arts versus in the sciences, you know, mm -hmm. and take AP calculus. I, I never has sounded like a jolly go there. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted a clarifying question. Did the college board move the dates into... Yeah. Right, so could it be that because colleges, some colleges were no longer requiring SAT boards that, that they, from a marketing standpoint, it sounds really smart to have moved it to November? Well, I, I think, so, yes. To just hedge your bet? And I would hedge that. And I think, too, when you think about if a parent doesn't know where they're going to send their child and they have the potential of not having I also think it's early in the course, and kids don't always know how they're doing in the course, and so they sign up for it. Whereas when the sign-ups were later, mm -hmm. kids were making decisions about whether they signed up, sometimes based on how they were doing in the course, and that is not an option really. Right, anymore. that's not you an option. Can, and you can still get, if you, like, if you opt out by like April 1st, or it used to be, you can get your money back. Mm -hmm. right. <clears throat> to me, I thought it was just a total money grab by the AP college boards. There, yeah. that's I all think it was. Yeah, yeah. We can look through it through that lens, and, it's, and it stands up very robustly from a marketing lens. But then, if you look through the child development lens, <laughs> it really doesn't stand up well. Yeah. You know, that, it, like in the Race to Nowhere film, there was a lot of pressure by the college boards on the colleges, and those reps were coming out and suggesting you need to take these four or five classes. and. Um, and I do think that looking at it through a money lens helps clarify um, the mission. I, you know, it's caused tremendous stress, and um, and and I just think that being multidimensional and reviewing it is considerate. That. Yeah. <coughs> um, I mean, I say what I'm going to say because I think it contrasts with the view of students taking too many AP classes. I guess what I wonder is. Bring you back to the student, each, to Paul, to your point, like, the individual student plan is probably a priority and understanding with um, our guidance counselors, what is the objective of the student and the family as to where their child will like to either go to college or not, and AP classes, like, I don't know, like, use example, UMass Amherst, highly competitive business school, if you want to go to UMass Amherst, do you need to take the AP classes? If the goal is to get to UMass Amherst, and it essentially requires it, then you want to guide the student to take those classes if that's your goal. If that's not the goal, then you might guide them against that. At some point, the students need to take AP classes probably comes back to what is the goal of where they'd like to go to college. And I, but I guess the data that I don't know is here is how does all this line up against the types of colleges that are out there, like Ivy League schools or things, what's the goal? Do you need them or not? If you don't need them, maybe we guide against it. If you do need them, it's a, it's a reality of how do you get into school. I think, I don't know, maybe I, I don't know a lot, but. Yeah, I, I think what you're striking on is uh, getting into college has gotten more competitive and a, a way to differentiate the students, try to differentiate themselves to make their high school experience more competitive to match that. And I just think it is the competitive atmosphere and AP has, for better or for worse, differentiating feature or families view it as such I don't I don't think this is a guidance department 
big heavy push. It, it, I, that's not my impression. Uh, but it, I, and I don't know what other schools of our similar caliber, I'm suspecting they, this would be very similar. These dynamics would be at play. Yeah, and I, and I apologize. I don't mean to say it's a push from guidance. I think it's, no, no, it's no, a responsibility no. of guidance at some point to say to a yeah. student's family, what do you want? Mm -hmm. and so I think when a parent says, when someone, maybe they don't get into coming out of eighth grade and they don't get the option to go into honors class, and parents say, well, I want my child in honors classes. Okay, well, what's, what's the goal? What are we trying to achieve? And then and some push, either you push them against it because they're not. Matt, I think, skills yet, or I think you're talking about pathways, really, and again, what's the goal, and what are the pathways to achieve those goals for students, um, and I think that's really important, um, and the pathway for some students to achieve goals could be taking APs, and other students to achieve the pathway of a student might not, and I think that's an important um, part of the planning and the guidance and the work that we do with students is what are your goals, what are the family's goals? and really identifying that path early on so that they can achieve the goals outlined um, successfully. And I was just gonna say that I think that the whole honors piece is part of this conversation yeah. also because this conversation comes up as people make choices about CP versus honors <coughs> and it's very hard to sort out perception versus reality in terms of the way decisions are made and teachers are often advising one way and then there's the whole debate about overrides by families and um, I, I hear this conversation across many departments of, you know, and everybody defines success in different ways to Greg's point of for some people they would like a more rigorous class and it's okay to have a lower grade. For others it's, you know, um, not gonna be acceptable. So it's, I think it's not just an AP conversation, but it's a sort of about pathways and, and the different levels and, and, it's, and then it starts at the middle GPA school. And, 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 you know, and that's where M Michelle Kalen can also help to really, um, really think about, have those conversations with families and students at the middle school level. Like what, is, what are the goals? You know, how, do we, how do we start at the middle school level and really think about how do we get there? Um, so it's conversations that, um, you know, Stephanie is having with our middle school uh, teams and, you know, it's feedback we've received from parents that many parents arrive as freshmen not quite aware of, of some of the decisions that happen at the middle school really impact the trajectory at the high school level. So again, we're talking about a couple topics yeah. that could be whole school committee presentations, which mm -hmm. I think are important um, to have. And um, it's also community education yeah. because we also have situations where that we were just discussing recently where parents will come into the high school and make the decision to even have their child repeat something to be at the honors level rather than sort of push forward at a CP level. And so there's a lot of different incentives at play for people. And so this is also about parent education and um, conversation as well. Within the parent education, I asked when I was guesting in a class here recently, what is a good school? And they said it has a low acceptance rate. Oh, which is a whole other thing. And that, that, was, that was it. And I was like, well, what about affordability? What about leaving without, um, what about having a nice campus? What about a great library? You know, like, that was where they were focused. And they were feeling all of this pressure regarding like that was the, you know, so I think that 
probably is a community conversation to have versus um, just with the kids, but I found that a surprising reaction, and they were really just kind of dumbfounded listening to me say, <laughs> you know, what about these other choices? They're like, oh, never thought about that. Yeah. Um, one thing that was brought up, I just want to talk about again, is first the GPAs, and then also um, to Mr. Desmond's point about the College Board being a money grab. I wonder if it's in Algonquin's future to expand the GPA scaling to have more advanced type courses that aren't necessarily AP, but would follow the same scaling and are typically um, instead more just advanced course and different subjects that maybe um, the College Board does not cover at the time. I wonder if that could be a way to take down student pressure with APs as well, while still providing them with um, the goals they want and the pathways that help push them forward. Yeah, um, weighting in GPA is definitely a conversation a lot of highly competitive high schools are having, and uh, that's something we talked about internally. And the school I came from had a similar <coughs> to what you're suggesting that. Um, in fact, it kind of went in the other direction where APs weren't more weighted than honors classes, and it had the effect, I think, that you're suggesting that it would enhance the appeal of honors classes and students wouldn't feel the compulsion to enroll in an AP class as a result. Okay. Moving on to enrollments. All right. In your packet is the enrollment report. Um, no significant variations uh, to report to the committee. And we are monitoring enrollment very closely um, with the class size presentation that Kathy Carmignani presented. It is part of the budget conversations as we move forward to make sure that um, we're making decisions using the enrollment data and also looking at how we can maximize the resources that we do have uh, on staff. General fund. <coughs> so um, I'll turn it over to Becky. So the monthly general fund report as of November 30th um, had $575,351 or 2.16% remaining. So we are down a percentage um, from the previous month's um, monthly general fund report where we had 3.13% remaining. Um, there are two reasons for that change. The first being, I think you may recall last month, we did mention that we had encumbered $150,000 in the operational budget um, for any um, potential um, cost overruns or additional projects that needed to be done as a result of the athletic complex. So we have set aside $150,000 and that's reflected in this bottom line. And then also there was a change to the salary guidance line. Um, we had two uh, departures from that department, um, and so we had unencumbered those funds, and those positions have since been um, rehired. Um, so just those two lines really account for that difference in the bottom line. Okay. I make a motion to accept the uh, monthly general fund expenditure report until audited for November. By Chris, seconded by Matt. Any questions, discussion? All those in favor? That's unanimous. Statement revenue. Okay. So during the month of November, we did receive uh, North Bros December 1st assessment payment. Um, I also want to point out um, in the second section the charter school tuitions. 
uh, you'll notice that in November we received $44,545. Um, in previous months, we were receiving $3,714. Um, so really that amount represents what we had anticipated receiving for the entire year. Um, we have reached out to DESE to find out why there was such a variance. Um, we are waiting, awaiting their um, response. And once I have more information, I will um, inform the committee. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that our investment income continues to come in higher than we had anticipated. Um, our district treasurer, Chris Taig, really does watch our interest rates and she works with our bank um, to make sure that she is maximizing our interest rates. Um, and so as a result, we have revised our investment income. Um, to reflect the increased receipts. So um, we've already far exceeded what our initial. Um, Good work. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the, the easiest thing I've done all year. So. <laughs> 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 um, so those are just a few highlights on the revenue report. Okay. I'm only familiar with charter school money going out. Like, you know, for when students go to charter schools for our districts. So. We, we do um, we do receive um, funds um, to help supplement the when tuitions that we are um, paying. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a bit of a surprise. So. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's not a bit of. It's not been. It was the way charter schools were set up. Yeah. In Massachusetts, but in order funded. to kind of appease the variability of like you lose a certain number of kids, but that doesn't mean you necessarily can change your staffing. But it has not always been a funded mandate. Like, so they have promised it, but not always delivered on it, is my understanding. I don't yes. know for because this district. Because but we're a region, we receive charter school money. Mm -hmm. Pre K through eight, the town receives mm -hmm. the, the charter money. So we uh, see it because we're the region. Got mm -hmm. it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It goes into the chapter 70. Okay. Yeah. In your packet is the FY. Anything else? <coughs> we have to vote that. Do we have to vote that? We usually vote that. Yes. I'll move that we accept the statement of revenue as of November 30th, 2023, until audited. Second. Moved by Paul, seconded by Sean. Any questions? Discussion? Uh, okay. Paul? I was ready to <laughs> vote. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All those in favor? <laughs> Passes unanimously. All right. Budget priorities. So, in your packet are the FY25 budget priorities, and as presented in the preliminary budget presentation, also in your packet is the FY25 budget calendar. So it's a running record of key uh, budget milestone and dates. So Cheryl Lepre does a great job of keeping that document updated. And also in your packet is a, um, a document uh, intermunicipal agreement. We heard a lot about the updates on the athletic complex uh, project this evening. Um, I'll briefly kind of review those quickly. The amphitheater is hopefully going to be completed by the end of December. We're still waiting for some news around the press box, um, but once that is approved, it basically is um, an on-site delivery drop in place and, and, and we're good to go. The bleachers are 90% complete. We're waiting for a few materials um, and we're anticipating being completed with phase one of the project by the end of December. Um, so we, we will be in great uh, position to have a grand opening uh, this spring. We also are working with uh, RGB, the architects for the amenities building, which is phase two. 
um, we are anticipating to go out for a bid um, the first uh, of the year. Uh, and we hope to have a contractor and a construction firm working on um, retrofitting the amenities building to include additional restrooms and to reconfigure where the um, where the windows are for um, sales of what's I'm losing the word what's the concessions thank you <laughs> concessions. <laughs> my brain shuts down at nine <laughs> some some would say earlier but, um, so again we're we're on target with our athletic complex and um, we'll provide updates and and then ahead to the committee also in your uh, packet is the intermunicipal agreement so um, this agreement really deals with the CPC and Southboro um, funding Southboro's portion of the tennis court. Um, Northboro's CPC elected not to fund the tennis courts. Um, the IMA is due to the fact that we're not following our regional agreement around how we're dispersing um, the costs of assessments for that portion of the project. Um, the intermissible agreement basically allows Southboro to pay its share using CPC funds, and then we'll bond the remaining amount for the community of Northboro. They'll be assessed and they can determine how they pay um, its portion. Um, so this basically allows um, the school committee to work outside of the regional agreement um, this will need to go before the select boards in Northboro and Southboro and also receive approval. We've had conversations with both select boards, so they are aware of this. And before you is, is the document um, that outlines the agreement that has been developed by bond council and been reviewed by our financial um, advisor. So we, we would like the committee to vote the IMA um, and also before we leave this evening also sign the IMA if it's the will of the committee. I just I just have a question. Does sure. that mean that the tennis court has been kind of separated and pulled out of the project as a whole? So it's just just the how it's being assessed. So it's part of the seven point nine million um, minus the CPC contribution from Southboro, and then it, it, it takes the remaining for Northboro and distributes it in a way that is fair. The only other way we could do it is is have a part of the assessment that's not fair to Southboro. Right. No. Any other questions? All right. Do I hear a motion? To uh, do I hear a motion to a approve the towns of Northboro and Southboro and the Northboro Southboro Regional School District intermunicipal agreement? So moved. <laughs> I saw Paul's lips moving. Moved <laughs> <laughs> by Paul, seconded by Matt. Uh, any questions or discussion? All those in favor? Unanimous. So we have a special patent or we can come in on. Do it right now and old business. Uh, so in your packet is also the FY25 capital plan. And <coughs> as um, was discussed at last meeting, we did develop a five-year capital plan and really distributed the, the capital projects across the five years. Um, what I've included in the packet is a draft warrant. <coughs> approximately $400,000 of capital projects 
in the FY25 um, year to be accomplished. Um, so it's the redundant domestic hot water boiler, the boiler number one blower motor, the glycol in the heating loop, lighting controls, and the failed RTU number 10, which is in the guidance area. So that sum is $391,000. Um, this is just draft language. My recommendation is to vote it closer to town meeting so it does go to town meeting for approval or disapproval of the debt assessment. So more information at this point. <coughs> Can I ask one question? Sure. Just, um, you don't have to answer it today, but maybe as we get closer. What, what happens if, if we put the warrant out for 391, if any one of these projects becomes greater than that? So the school committee would vote um, to approve this, and then that would initiate sending that information to the towns, and then the towns would have 60 days to approve or disapprove of this. They don't get to vote on specific items within this. It's either all or nothing. But were you asking like More, if the project well, came like if instead of maybe 70, the collection of them all like yeah. somehow? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the school. So the way it works, the school committee will, because you are its own, you are an entity. You get to vote to approve these, either all or one or none. But it's the school committee who gets to decide, and then the towns. Um, have to decide whether they're going to disapprove or approve <coughs> the assessment. It's it's a little bit different. It's similar to the athletic complex project um, moving forward. Is that accurate? Thank you. Okay. Policy development and distribution, none at this time. Audience sharing, none at this time, because there's no audience. Anyone from the table? Nope. Okay. Personnel, distribution of personnel report is in your package. Correct. Uh, communications not at this time. Approval bills and payrolls we do online. Agenda items for next month. Guidance department presentation, multi-language learner data and presentation. FY25 recommended budget presentation. Does anybody have any other requests, suggestions? And any other business which may legally come before the committee. So in case you don't now, we can always do it then. All right. Do I hear a motion? So moved. <coughs> second. <laughs> by Paul, seconded by Sean. Any discussion? <coughs> All those in favor? That is unanimous. We are adjourned.